I was watching Ben Chilwell pull his hamstring and then carried the tunnel and he was practically dead. Yeah, she's twenty. I passed away. Like that, that word was used. Oh, it's, it's a tragedy. Subscribe now to the OTB Football Podcast stream wherever you get your podcasts and download the OTB Sports app. OTB AM with Gillette in association with Movember. Effortless shave, magnificent mo. You're very welcome along. Oh, was that the sound of your water? Or is that a sound effect on the end of it? Uh, Colin there, desperately getting some fluids into him. Coffee. 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 As Ronan O'Gara said, 2006, Leicester Tigers post-match interview. First question from the interviewer. Ronan, congratulations. Huge win for Munster. Is that tea or coffee? Just said coffee. It was his uh, last-minute penalty. Do you remember that? Uh, yes, yes. The wind and rain. One of his finest moments of many. So that's the secret. Yeah. There you go, good start to the show. Shane, how are you? Good morning, lads. How are Colin, things? how are you? I'm good, yeah. Shane's just back from Villa Park. It took him this long to get back. It's uh, you know, a far distant outpost. It is. It Bir- is. Birmingham's you know. a bit of a shithole, isn't it? Do you know what? Jesus, um, no need for that. We have a big Birmingham following. Like I'd been I, oh, I, I mean, I love Aston Villa, but the city needs to... Like, the needs city a bit of, of Birmingham. city needs a bit of help. Yeah, I, maybe part of it was Sunday, because we went, we went into Birmingham near New Street to kind of get the, the couple of pints in after the match, and... Uh, is, that, is that the bull ring? It's, yeah, close there. And it's, it's uh, look, I, I, yeah, it's a bit, yeah, okay, it is a bit of a shithole. It's not, uh, it's not the nicest. It's like D- Dublin in the 80s, is, you know, it's just no one ever came along and gave it a lick of paint. No, I was thinking, is it Sunday, because Sunday evening not much happens in the cities in the UK, I guess it's a bit quieter than, than Dublin, say, for example, on a Sunday night. But it was fairly grim. We went to the Witten Arms in Aston, very close walking distance of the stadium, which was... Uh, judging by research in a way pub but then it was kind of split into two the away fans the United fans at the back heavily searched in terms of bags and body checks and all the rest that you'd expect on, a, on an away day but um, really good experience I have to say I really liked Villa Park uh, the result wasn't good from, from a United perspective but Villa were brilliant Villa were good really really good Yeah, and like the atmosphere was incredible uh, which you'd expect, I guess, for a new manager in his first game in charge. But uh, yeah, it was just one of those games where you're like, eh, better team won, three one, fair enough. Even Tyrone Mings played brilliantly well. So you're like, ah, this is. There was there was one clearance where Tyrone sliced it into the air, and you're like, oh, this is one go. of those highlight reels where a goal comes. That tussle with Ronaldo was interesting, wasn't it? Yeah, he yeah. Didn't uh, back down at all. No, no. He doesn't see that people people doing that to Ronaldo. Nah, you can't. You do now. You see it all the time. I don't see yeah. people tussling with the at like the moment. You see anymore. it all the time. Everybody's trying to make their bones by going, yeah, I'm going to have some something on my social, me and Ronaldo, yeah, and yeah. Uh, showing off. No, what Tyrone was thinking at that moment. Like everybody's headlock on my yeah. Instagram. Instagram following. Uh, engagement. Yeah. Through the roof, yeah, I, lads. I have to say, Villa Park is. I, I'm, I'm. I warmed to it. A cathedral. Um, a cathedral. Of course, we were trying to get the the puppy sold us outside the stadium and and all the rest, and went into the pubs afterwards and played pool in, in probably the the worst singular pub I've ever set foot in in my life. Um, it was all the locals, the Villa fans after the match, kind of reflecting and trying to play pool and. The pool table was one of those where it was balls were rolling down towards the the one end. We were like, "What? What are we doing in here?" Um, but I like those pubs with a bit of character. Well, until, a- until everything plenty of them. until everything kicks off, and then it's like, "Ah, oh, it's all fun and games." And somebody lost an eye, literally. Well, true, that is true. Um, but no, like an experience, and I'd certainly it's certainly a stadium I go back to. I think. Um, but yeah, I think a day trip is the best way to do it. That pub I'm picturing a scene from Train Spanning Two. It was a bit. Yeah, even when we were in the pub beforehand. The Witten Arms at the back. It, it, it was all about Green Street. Um, like away fans don't tend to wear jer- I probably saw three United jerseys across the entire day um, I, th- yeah, that's, this is what I know about Villa Park right from what I've heard Tosco said it was a massive pitch it's great to play on huge yeah loved it um, and the second is that their fans are very moody and can turn on a whim 
That's just yeah. the, the cadence of the accent. It sounds moody. So, oh, it, yeah, it was, the, the chance they got the chance going. See, I didn't get to see that side because they scored so early and then went two 0 ahead so early. You're like, oh, they're just in a good mood for the entire game. When Luke Shaw scored the effective goal, they weren't even worried because it was four half time. Came back out, got the two goal cushion extended. So. I don't know. Amy Martinez had a few chances. He, he's a popular guy over there. Oh, yeah. Out, well, and the brilliant save from uh, Ronaldo Header. Yeah, yeah. Ah, he's quality. Um, Jacob Ramsey. Wendy Straight in as captain as well. New new manager names the guy who should be captain. Captain. Yeah. Everything's in place. McGinn comes off the bench, plays really well. And even Ings, like Ings wins a corner towards the end over the corner where we were cl- kind of close stand. Just the re- reaction from the crowd for every little moment. And then they were cheering every pass at the end of the game and you're thinking this is rubbing salt in the wounds for United here yeah like it's 27 years since I've seen that yeah was it 95 the last time that's a very 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 long time against any team in football and it's like you know it's only Man United it was two all last season I think under Gerrard they very nearly did it Nearly the Emery effect. So your brother anyway was struggling for a ticket. Ah, oh, lads. So I was presenting here on Saturday, and we had pretty t- shameless. I'm on my holidays getting texts from saying, "Go on, here, listen, get me a ticket." Well, uh, that's fair, I said, I said, I said who you know text? Text? <laughs> yeah, I think it was a new column that said text you there. I said he's <laughs> online. Don't worry, he's online. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I texted every Villa fan I, I know, just saying, do you have any contacts? Um, you texted Paul McGrath. That's that I, is that is uh, that is shout out pain. to uh, show fan. Roy Larmer yeah, just why yeah. didn't he text Paul McGrath and, yeah, yeah, don't be texting Paul McGrath asking for tickets <laughs> <laughs> so sometimes you just need an adult in the room don't be texting I was Paul on, McGrath for tickets I was actually but it was on the, it was on the pre- Irish football legend first time you've heard from him in like I don't know ever maybe and it's yeah, like yeah but it's not like no, Paul it's but, like Paul no comma due tickets that it's wasn't the premise a bit of a conversation like. that wasn't it's the premise it's sleazy that is, that's no, hold on hold on this needs context is this his idea as well no 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 this needs context whose yeah, idea was this don't be fighting at me I helped you out that is Despicable. I have to Don't text people you don't know asking for tickets. That's my job. Ever. You, it's a rule. You, the first half of that sentence is my job. Like this I needs, text people I don't know all the time. To come on the, the show. show. To speak to us. This yes. needs context. Yeah. So I texted Paul McGrath and what I said was, Paul, heading over to uh, Astonville United tomorrow. Hello, how are you? I, <laughs> how are you keeping? I hope you're keeping well. All of that. Shivering in the text. Said, this, is a, this is an Thank unknown you. number. I accept that. I said if, if you... It was actually on a Twitter DM. It was a Twitter DM. Oh, okay. Uh, that's less... Well, that's, that's good. He knows your information. It's right there. Blue and, tick? Uh, I, blue said, blue I said, look, do you... Blue tick? I have blue tick, yeah. yeah of course, yeah. Um, eight bucks a month. Eight <laughs> bucks a month. I actually said to him, look, if you, if you wouldn't mind sitting down, if you'd be over at the Villa game and you'd be around to sit down for an interview for 10 minutes after the match, great. Uh, oh, by the way... If you had any tickets, that's the charm. That's the hand and charm coming through. Yeah, no, but we 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 got sorted eventually by the um, the uh, the goodwill and good nature of David Myler sending out a few texts to his contacts. So, shout out to David Myler for for helping us out. No, 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 no. You started the story, now you had to finish it. What happened? What kind of a headline <laughs> See, is that? You're, you're, Don't okay, one, one, sorry, one last thing. You're on the radio, on national radio, with uh, like 150,000 people listening. Shameless, a shameless. Yeah, yeah. This is, I hold this, my hands up. This is also not good. So you, uh, you're, the, uh, you're the worst. You you've like desperate habits. That's very Nathan Murphy. You've desperate pointing. First, that's awful. Well, I'm right? pointing. At, aw- I'm sorry. You you're be, right. You're right. The, point, you the, shouldn't be pointing. The people. In life the people. Way in, beyond that. The people uh, watching don't know that I'm pointing directly at column because off screen. Or, ordinarily, I wouldn't do it. But I, I know what, see, my brother. My brother booked his flights over. He was coming over. I felt sorry. It was my younger brother. You got to look after your own. Your own. You know. So I felt sorry for him flying over, and I'd be going into the press box, and he'd be sitting there in the pub, in the most depressing pub in England, watching the game by himself on a tiny little television that was. F- from the second sixties, so I felt sorry for him. Poor Birmingham, uh, all this. I know. So, so uh, you know, yeah. Put the contacts out there. Myler said on air on on the weekend that he, he I'm going to text your captain. Uh, so he 
he puts a text in with a former team with a former teammate of his, Harry Who? Maguire. Right, uh, Harry uh, Maguire. Of course, yeah. he played alongside at Hull City, and uh, lo and behold, we walk up to the ticket office. Um, uh, half twelve, an hour and a half before throw in or throw in, as I kick <laughs> off at Villa Park, and uh, brown envelope, big brown envelope, the name Harry Maguire written on the outside, and. Uh, yeah, for Harry Maguire. For, unbelievable. Uh, Harry Maguire for Shane Hannon. Open the envelope. It did say for Shane Hannon. It, it did. did. Oh, wow, okay. So we had a ticket. Because uh, I was thinking, like, your brother walks up and goes, Harry Maguire, and they're like, you're not, you're not, you're not Harry Maguire. You I don't actually, even sound like him. I actually walked up to the desk and said, uh, ticket for Shane Hannon from Harry Maguire, and I felt like an idiot. I did feel like an idiot, but uh, they were like, oh, yeah, that's here, yeah, no problem. Wow, uh, there you go. So, shout out Harry Maguire and David Myler. Harry Maguire for the England team, straight in, straight back in. Harry Maguire, I love him. I love him. Well, I, like he, he should have started. Might have been a different result. Should have started. And I saw him warming up. New tickets. He was warming up close to us in the second half, and I was thinking, ah, what a man. Fair play. So it, it changed you, my attitude. You stood up in the press box and went, love you, Harry. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. Shamed myself. But, um, yeah, right. look, it was, it was a great, like, an experience. I'm glad the brother got in, and, uh, yeah, probably shamelessly used contacts to, to get the ticket in the I'm end. I'm glad Harry Maguire got some positive coverage for once. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. It's a lovely thing to do. He deserves it. And he was brilliant against West Ham the previous week for the last half hour. So, uh, yeah, I it's can see all a bit of a redemption arc in his story. It's all coming up, Harry. Well, because he's not the focal point anymore. Because when he plays, it's kind of noteworthy, and then he yeah, and then he's no yeah. pressure to stay in the team because the starting partnership does not involve him anymore. Well, he could have, he could have a huge World Cup. Mm. If England yeah, he definitely played the World Cup. Yeah, yeah. played to Harry. Shout out to Harry. Shout out to Harry and shout out to David Myler for for helping us out. So, well, shameless. Anyway. Yes, for Blomquist, John Sievebeck, Peter Schmeichel, your boys took one hell of a beating to the weekend. <laughs> oh, Schmeichel, technically, yeah. I suppose. Ended up as uh, one of the Villa boys for yeah. a little while. Well, we landed over as well. We were, we were quite early to the stadium because the, the flight was, was fairly early over. Shout out to Owen Sheehan as well for, for getting me the, the flight. That was the, oh, the, the bonus yeah, ride there. I forgot about this, yeah. So uh, yeah. He, he actually, right, Owen Sheehan basically essentially paid for my flight without uh, realising it. Um, but as soon as you landed at Villa Park, you had a big, massive kind of. Uh, images of Paul McGrath and Alan McLaughlin and all these guys like, there's a massive Irish you forget the Irish influence on the club um, so well you don't, you don't forget the Paul McGrath influence I guess but it's not Alan McLaughlin sorry not Alan McLaughlin um, Andy Townsend it? It was Townsend uh, David O'Leary as well and Ray Houghton and sure all these like there's, there's do they have David O'Leary up he's well, no, a former manager no I'm just thinking of the the Irish people that have had a role in the club like yeah I don't think they remember Devil O'Leary too fondly not quite as, not quite as <laughs> fondly bleak period in terms of the football quality one, football one bad transfer and he gave this to Doug Ellis afterwards that's yeah, my, yeah, that's yeah, my yeah. memory of terrible, terrible Villa manager but um, yeah the Doug Ellis stand that's where the away fans were put into Villa Park as well so. yes, it's interesting isn't it that they <laughs> yeah. put the away fans in the in I know throw them in there but yeah quality stadium quality atmosphere highly recommend alright OTBAM brought to you with Gillette in association with Movember effortless shave magnificent mo you can sign up or donate now at movember.com Reese McLennan is going to join us fresh from his world championship gold medal at 7.50 Graham Hunt is going to talk to us about PK and the uh, Champions League draw and it turns out the Europa League draw Sports pages at half eight. Eric Donovan's going to join us in the studio. He <coughs> has officially announced his retirement at uh, eight forty. Paddy Marr uh, has got a new book out, and we're going to talk to him about that book at ten past nine. And then we'll play you some highlights from Monday Night Rugby. Uh, right, I do want to talk a little bit about Martin O'Neill. Has got his own book out. Back page of the Irish Independent. Stephen Beacom has done an interview with him. Uh, I was treated as an outsider, as Ireland boss, a figure you hate, says O'Neill. The um, the quotes here are the Denmark result became a point for the Republic media to throw everything at you in terms of criticism it was kind of storing up a little bit the truth is there were a number of times that I was called the northerner or the outsider 
and I was treated in many ways the same way as Trapattoni eventually became one of those figures you tend to hate. I think that was it. My persona didn't seem to fit with them throughout the time, and I'm even going back to heavy criticism in the early stages of our 2016 European campaign when we were in the same group as Germany, Poland, Scotland and Georgia. Um, so, it, it, like, it's interesting because I think there's a germ of truth in this. Uh, I think there's more of a germ of truth in that maybe his persona didn't stick with people, certain people, but I don't know if his being from the north... I mean, James McLean's from the north, Shane Duffy's technically from the north. These guys are... You know, in a similar position to Martin O'Neill, and I don't think anyone refers to them or, or treats them differently because of their. Well, I'm sure they are in some quarters, but certainly not amongst the fans. And I don't, th- I don't think any of the fans treated O'Neill differently because he was from the north. Did they? I, that's not that's not a that's not a, a thing that that wasn't a thing at the time, and I don't think it's a thing now. He's talking about the media. Sorry, right? But he's talking about generally this perception. I think that uh, I think that um, just because they're paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get you. Eyebrows were raised when he was appointed, wasn't it? Former Northern Irish International Republic of Ireland manager. It's like, oh, yeah, that's interesting. But it was, was it nothing more than that at the time. Yeah, but media coverage. I think it was seen as a positive appointment. Yeah, it probably it was. overshadowed by his assistant also. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Oh, you, you obviously remember it differently. Uh, I just think that there is a generally acceptable level of anti-Northern stuff in general conversation and it's like mostly fine sometimes it flares up mm. I don't think that um, I think that I think that all the conversations around the United Ireland are going to be very interesting because you're going to see a lot of people who don't want it in the south Yeah, who have been like yeah yeah it'll be grand it'll be grand but then they'll be like now when it comes to voting for it there'll be, there's going to be like a surprising group of people who vote against it without ever telling you that they're going to vote against it yeah, that's like, what I think like Brexit I think um, yeah that's what I think now I think at the start of that campaign, the football was grim. That Scotland, that away Scotland performance, we played terribly. I think the Denmark game, he took off all his central midfielders and they poured through the central midfield area. And did Nicholas Bentner score the fifth? Yeah, he did. He did. So that is, yeah. There's a lot, you know, we actually we had to leave early to get post match fan reaction. So we left when it was 4 1 and I missed Bentner. Did he drop his pants? No, it's a penalty. Penalty, yeah. We can hear that, and we spoke to the Danish fans afterwards. But so he was the, the team deserved the criticism that they were getting at that stage. If he had left at the end of the Euros, he'd go down as a brilliant Ireland manager who got us out of a group at a, at a tournament. Even when you say that, right? Everyone's like, "Oh, they only beat Italy, though." It's like, I mean, he they, come on, he got he got like brilliant performances from Jeff Hendrick, yeah, and. Who else was in that midfield? And, uh, well, uh, he did kind of did have to, did yeah, have to press gang into playing Wes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I don't know. I thought like that, that tournament. We got out of the tournament. We won a up against France. We had a man sent off. France are at home. Yeah. I like his track record on balance is excellent, but everybody still is like, no. I think yeah. I think that's because he 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 lets off uh, a certain attitude in interviews. What attitude? It it, it just seems to be an air of. Um, What's the word to describe it? He's quite um, quite sarcastic sometimes in interviews. I find very sarcastic. Yeah, but that's but that's just him, and, and I think maybe that's why some certain members of the media maybe didn't like his attitude and maybe wrote negative articles about him because of the way they were treated in press conferences. Yeah. Potentially, he but didn't like a certain member of the media as well. Like, and it became painful viewing post match. Yeah, I mean, well, like you were saying, if only he left after Euro twenty sixteen, um, 
he would have gone down well as Irish manager. If O'Neill stopped managing at around 2010, he would have been seen as an absolutely phenomenal football person in general, both as a player and a manager, because the things he did at Leicester, Celtic, yeah. and then initially at your own club, when they played so well, they got into Europe, and that kind of distracted him, and the form dipped after that. When he was named Ireland manager... I think it was largely met with positive reaction. I was delighted. I thought oh. this is like a, a perfect thing. And I actually How think that changes. I, I mean, I still think it was the right decision. I still think that uh, on balance, the the uh, whole experience was largely a positive one. Where we go to a tournament, we play good football when we get there. Apart from the Belgium game, we get out of a group. We like we. It's a massive recovery from the Trapattoni era, where we got absolutely annihilated and hammered, and we're told you're no good. Don't even try anything. At the uh, at the Euros, four years later, we're getting out of the group. Like I, I think that's his legacy. The uh, Denmark game, unfortunately, is also a part of the legacy, and we did get completely annihilated in that game because they just they weren't thinking straight. Yeah, Something happened. They had this massive brain fart, and they weren't thinking. Like the build up to that game was so exciting. Mm-hmm. Like the first ten minutes of that game were so exciting, and then Christian Eriksen played the greatest game of his life. He had moments of extremes, you know. Because it, like, it was the, the Germany game, 2015, Shane Long, yeah. and then the Euros as well. And he provided what Stephen Kenny hasn't so far, which is that reading in the year's amazing moment, yeah, like, where Kenny's gradually improving the football, but the results aren't following. O'Neill was not quite the total opposite, but he did provide those seminal moments. And like, one thing with O'Neill's tenure as Ireland manager is it won't be forgotten because there's a lot of talking points from it. So he made an impact initially quite positively yeah. and then it completely turned. But it's amazing to see that for a guy who managed for nearly two decades and largely had an extremely successful managerial career, really what's remembered is the latter portion of it. And, how, and, they, and certainly how he came across in the media, which did not help. Like, it's all about perception. Yes. If he came across quite... Like he's a charismatic guy, but he let the other side of his personality get through and then he became a bit of a dislikable figure, which is unfortunate considering what he achieved in the game. I, I like Martin, but he, like he's he's obviously feeling a little bit sour as to how it ended with Ireland, with, with himself and Keane, and the to say the least perceived yeah. image to that say the least. There. And look, he's trying to sell a book, and he's got he's got issues that he wants. to I think to he's vent. telling his truth, right? Yeah, yeah of course. I, I think that uh, this is so the pantomime after the post match with. Uh, with uh, Tony Dunne, who we're all talking about, right? Yeah, the, those post match interviews, like. Is that more important than the quality of the football? It isn't really. Like you were talking about, perception is reality. Grand, but like surely people can get over. There's some. There's some kind of clash here. There's something going on. I don't know what it was. I can't actually remember what the trigger for it was. He has a very thin skin. Does not yes. take criticism very well. Has remembered a lot of the criticism. I do think some of it was motivated by the fact that here's a northerner coming down. I, I do genuinely think really? that an element of that was the football was no good in the, like in portions. But then when the football was good, there was still a kind of sneaking kind of yeah. Well, he doesn't deserve any credit for this. Like, well, all right, okay, fair enough, fair enough. But then Mick McCarthy comes in and we're like scraping against Gibraltar and we're scraping against Georgia. And, like, what did he do in the second period? In his first period, he had Roy Keane, Robbie Keane, Damien Duff. So, uh, what did Trapattoni make us watch? It was really abysmal. Apart from, in fairness, the qualifying campaign for the World Cup, uh, when Thierry Henry handballed, there was some good performances. That performance that. was excellent, yeah. That performance, yeah. But overall, the performance against the two, Italy, the two Italy performances were decent. I never thought about that Northern element, but only if he thinks that, then it's true. <coughs> yeah. Because it's his own, that's his own experience. But, like... Mark C there in the YouTube comments I think Nails generally was like never liked O'Neill but it had nothing to do where he came from True, and I yeah. feel that that never for, liked for those, for those, yeah for those who disliked even at, him even at the start now I no 
know what? I think it was just right at the end. He became a bit Never unpalatable. He became unpalatable at the end. Yeah. Uh, that was really what happened. All sporting careers end in failure. But it I'd was say a bit of a like, politician's career, yeah. Gets no credit for getting out of a group. True. But I have to say, I read the book because even in champion football, there's a lot of stories that I'm like, I hope he brings these things. Well, I, do you know, I'll read the book because of his Forest days and Celtic and Leicester because the extract about the Clough story is fascinating, yeah, Brian yeah, Clough, yeah. when he throws the medal. He wrote it himself, which is, which is pretty interesting. Yeah. Uh, not a million people do that. I know Paul Gavin did. It was really good. 7.50 this morning, OTBAM brought to you with Gillette in association with Movember. Effortless shave, magnificent mo. You can sign up or donate now at movember.com. Right now, we're joined on the line by Ireland's first ever gymnastics world champion, Reese McLenaghan. Good morning to you. How are you? I'm very well. I'm very well. It's good to hear you say that. Where's the gold medal? Right here, sitting beside me. All right. Nice. <laughs> Have you been uh, just wearing it around the house, looking at yourself in the mirror? <laughs> it's just been sitting at, on my bedside table just to remind myself when I wake up every morning that it's actually real. When does it sink in, or has it yet? I don't think it's quite sunk in yet, to be honest. Um, I don't know when it will. Maybe it never will. Who knows? But um, I'm just so happy that it's done. It's like a huge relief that, um, you know, first of all, that I was able to perform on that big stage. But then also just to finally, you know, have that, that world title that I've dreamed about for so long. It feels like that's such a huge thing ticked off on my list. It, like uh, it, uh, we're on the outside and we're complete amateurs when it comes to this but it feels like the thing that separates everybody at the end of these big tournaments that you're at isn't really technical ability it seems like you're all very very talented you've all done a gazillion hours you all know exactly what you're trying to do it's that bit that you talked about there delivering on the big stage that separates the medalists each time that it happens is that where the relief comes from that you finally did justice to all that hard work and those years of graft yeah, very much so. Um, so, you know, all of that physical preparation is done in the, the months before the competition. So when you when you hit competition time, your arms shouldn't really be that fatigued at all. So it's not like, you know, you're pushing through your marathon or you're um, pushing your body to the limits during the competition. You're actually just zoning in on your skills. And when you do that around a skill-based sport the, and nerves have a part to play, then they're going to affect those skills that you, you've actually got. So especially for an apparatus like the pommel horse. You'll see people falling all the time. It's very rare to get a pommel horse final. If there has ever been a pommel horse final with no falls in it, I'd love somebody to send it to me uh, because it's just one of those apparatus. And luckily I was able to hold my own nerves there. And uh, why this time? What, what's different about what just happened this weekend enabled it, that enabled you to reach that level of excellence and keep the nerves at bay or feel the nerves and work with them? So, I mean, I, I feel like I am able to do that. And um, I've always been able to do that. And that's due to kind of the mindset training that goes into my, my everyday practice. So, you know, my coach and I do these practice competitions where we create high-pressure situations. Sometimes Luke even gets a bunch of school kids in to watch my practice competitions just to add that bit of pressure. So it's something we do train for. And, um, you know, the the pre so this is my fifth world championship. So... It certainly doesn't come easy, um, but there's so many contributors to, to not having got that gold medal in the past. But, um, you know, it's it's just a relief to have it done now. Reese, am I right in saying that you mentioned your coach there, Luke Carson, and, and I know you've been working together for, for a long time, eight years or so. You, you changed up your, your pommel horse routine at some point in, in the build-up. So, like, how crucial was that in, in terms of getting over the line and getting this gold medal? 
Yeah, it was. It's hugely crucial. It, it's just a, a perfect example of things not going well and learning from them, making a decision and making a call to to change the routine for the better. And um, you know, it was a, it was a tactic uh, and a new skill that we put into the routine coming into this year to try and improve our, our execution score mostly. But that routine just didn't didn't compete well. It, it it's a strange skill, and um, it just I stayed on the pommel horse throughout all the competitions, but I just split my legs, and that was enough for the judges just to absolutely annihilate me on that execution score and take points off me. So uh, we thought, you know, that that's what happened at the Commonwealth Games, uh, where I got silver, even with that mistake, and and then at the European Championships, I I just missed out on that final because of an error. So we went back to the training hall, we, we reassessed and um, we thought of a routine that could take me the, take home this gold medal and uh, it worked out. That must be even more fulfilling in a way that like uh, it's not just the physical thing that you've had to work out, it's the strategic element that you've delivered on as well. Yeah, certainly. Um, you know, that, that's the beauty of gymnastics as well. It's finding individual skills that suits every gymnast individually. So um, the routine is comprised of uh, 10 skills so it's about selecting those skills very carefully uh, having a, a nice balance of difficulty but then also executing them very well and um, my my routine now is full of those difficult skills but also the very nice execution of them what difference does it make having had the setbacks that you've had over the last 18 months like how, how beneficial in the in the long run has that been to you I know at the time they obviously don't feel like Oh great! Yay! Another another day of learning where I'm really disappointed. Yeah, it certainly don't. It feels like you're knocked down and then somebody's stomping on your head while you're down on the ground. Uh, if you lose competition after competition or have failure after failure, but because of that, it makes these successes so much sweeter. And uh, I feel like that's why in my um, Post, uh, post-competition interview, all I did was cry. I did not get one word out in that interview. I just cried because there was so much relief and um, I know how hard it was to go back into that gym after those failures and and be composed about it, learn from the mistakes and, um, you know, inevitably put on a performance like I did in Liverpool. Because you can't have been composed when you, you know, when everything you've been working for for a number of years and and it does fall apart like that, you can't have been composed. You must have been in turmoil. Yeah, I, you know, it, it's... I, I was composed for the most part, I must say, but, you know, obviously you train for hours on end and put, put in every day of my life is dedicated to gymnastics and then when your one moment doesn't go to plan, uh, you know, of course that's going to have uh, a negative effect on your mentality, but it's just you don't want it to over overtake your mindset. You don't want it to be a, a mindset that sticks. You can be disappointed. I let myself be disappointed because I know that I flipped that disappointment into into motivation because I never want to feel that feeling again. So, for example, after the Olympics, I was like, yeah, damn right, I'm disappointed, but I'm going to turn this into motivation. And um, I, I did exactly that. And I think that's one of the reasons why I, I'm on top of the world right now. How much would you say, Reese? your discipline is... is- physical versus mental because like that's something that struck me after your you know in your interview I was thinking that's such a normal reaction and emotion to becoming a world champion not being able to speak and being and being so emotional like you're clearly yeah. in the physical shape to win a gold medal but how much of it is is on the mental side uh, I would I would say that gymnastics um for me anyway is 80% mental and 20% physical right um that's a, just a rough estimation that I've always had in my head and 
yeah, yes, of course, you have to put in that um, that physical grind. You got to go into the gym every day. You got to do that. But even to get there into the gym to put in the effort, it's all up here. It's all in your minds, and that's where um, I feel like I, I thrive in this sport. Where when you know the shoulder gives up on me and I have to get surgery and push the rehab, or I have multiple wrist fractures, um, you know, it's it's something you have to always push past mentally before you even get your body back to physical shape. It, like it strikes me, I saw Max Whitlock, the uh, Team GB athlete, congratulating you and, and and some lovely words he said about you afterwards. And um, like he's he's got the three three medals at that world level. He's the Olympic champion. It, it, people are talking about this rivalry kind of building up. I know you you probably have a few years on him, which is an advantage to yourself. But uh, like, is that something that you kind of look for in gymnastics? It's an individual sport, and yet to have these kind of rivalries and people that you look at to to kind of target must be a must be a positive thing. Yeah, I think it is a positive thing, um, and I, I I welcome it to be honest. Um, and I don't think it's done enough in gymnastics. You know, you see the boxers, you see the MMA fighters. It's always those those toe to toe press conferences, and that's what builds up the hype to the fight. And I want that to be the case in gymnastics too. Um, you know, I, I said after the first time I beat Max, the the current Olympic champion, when I was eighteen, I said I'm coming for that world title mm-hmm. next, Max in my in my uh, post competition instagram post and i feel like that was the the initiation of the rivalry and uh, it's something that does motivate me in training as well and you know when i'm sitting on my bum in training i think oh what's what's max doing or what's that chinese guy doing in training that you know gets me off my bum and makes me work harder than ever that's what i want to see in, in paris now the uh, face off a way in a face-off in terms of gymnastics. Like you're speaking of the boxing reference, like you, you've you've referenced Katie Taylor as well as 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 someone who's who's inspired you as well in the world stage. Yeah, of course. I mean, it, it it's people seem surprised that I say Katie Taylor is one of my biggest inspirations in sport, and I I, I can't for the life of me understand why she's the greatest of all time in what she does. And uh, has any Irish athletes? being able to say that's completely undisputed like Katie Taylor has um, that to me is just remarkable and uh, to see an Irish athlete do that is um, is very very inspirational to me and it shows to me that why can't I aim for that too What does that mean for you then over the next period of time like um, I know you know you're in the absolute sweet spot of, of greatness at the moment and the Olympics is on your radar how long can you be a, a full-time gymnast for is there an exterior life that you need to fall back into and kind of develop at the same time so that gives you a little bit of comfort or escape from gymnastics or is it purely in the gymnastics bubble at the moment what's that like I mean I love what I do so it makes that that's um, hard work even more bearable I want to go into the gym and push my body and mind to the limits and um, you know maybe there is a time limit on that but there was a guy that came third in the Palmer Horse final. He's thirty eight. <laughs> he's he's thirty eight. That's crazy. He's the oldest world medalist ever, though. So that's a little bit of an exception. And I don't feel like I'll go to thirty eight years old in this sport, which is fine by me. Um, but you know that just kind of shows the time frame. I, I could be doing this into my thirties. So uh, that's that's a very exciting thing. So hopefully, there's a lot more gold medals to come with that. And is there is there a, a separate career plan? Do you do you find that you need to dedicate all of your brain space to thinking about and visualization and rest, or do you actually want to go and study and you know develop that other part of your of your life so that these two things kind of coexist? What's your strategy and approach to that? 
Yeah, well, uh, I'm a qualified gymnastics coach now, so I'm trying to work my way up the, the qualifications and hopefully one day become a coach, maybe open up my own club. You know, there's a lot of ambition outside of gymnastics. Well, outside of my actual gymnastics career, it's still pertaining to gymnastics because I feel like it would almost be um, a wasted knowledge, you know, of me being in this sport for all of my life and then just stopping it and moving on to something else and starting fresh. I would love to carry on that knowledge that I've gained throughout the years and pass it on to the younger generation and uh, and help them become world champions and hopefully even beat my achievements. Who took you first to a gymnastics club? What was the impetus behind that? It was just my mum and dad. Uh, they took me to just a local leisure centre. Um, it, you know, it was a gymnastics club. They just had you know benches, you know that kind of school PE equipment uh, in terms of gymnastics. And I just loved it straight away. Even the simplicity of the, you know, the small square trampoline that I could jump off on the soft mat. That was just, that was awesome to me. That was so cool. And there was something that, yeah, I always say that I was doing gymnastics before I went to that gymnastics club. I was always bouncing on my own trampoline in my back garden, climbing trees, teaching myself how to do a backflip on the trampoline. So when I got that opportunity to go to those facilities, it was, um, it was very nice. And when did you start deciding that, okay, I'm going to just do nothing but this now for a while and, and get good at it, basically? It was when I was eight. So I, I rem- For some reason, I remember this conversation very vividly with my mom. I, I had to leave gymnastics training very early. Um, one, one evening to go to football practice. And, uh, I, you know, I loved doing other sports. I loved doing football. But I remember just saying, like, I, I, just, I just want to focus on gymnastics. I felt like there was guys in that gymnastics gym working hard and I was leaving and going and playing football and I I just wanted to be in that gymnastics gym all the time and improving my skills Are you do you see yourself you sound like someone who is but like a student of other sports as well Reese? like you're watching other sports people like you mentioned Katie Taylor there but whether it's boxers or golfers or footballers like almost picking up little bits here and there and, and, and tidbits of information from, from people outside your own sport yeah, certainly. Uh, I think uh, my go-to is definitely boxing. Uh, all the amateur boxers and uh, you know the professionals too. I, I love their mindset, and of course, as I said, eighty percent of my sports, I believe, is is mindset. So, um, you know, when I do look at those boxers and they they genuinely believe that they're going to go to these fights and win, uh, that's something that I feel like a lot of sports people might not do, um, and. I feel like I can do that. I feel like I can handle the pressure of saying, I want to become world champion and I go and do it. So, uh, and you know, it, it might take that, that fifth world championships that I go to to get it, but I'm going to make sure that I'm going to do it. It's a real Irish thing, isn't it? That inhibition and, and not w- being willing to kind of put yourself out there and say, I'm going to be the best because we're, we're kind of naturally the opposite maybe as a, as a, as a nation. I know that's a generalised statement, but overall I think we are so I think we we, we attach ourselves to people like yourself and, and athletes who, who are so ultra confident on, on the world stage like borderline cocky and I mean that in a, in a positive sense like it's it's so refreshing to see someone like that yeah I, and I understand it I really do I understand why um, why people uh, don't like to say you know I want to do this and do that but what, what I like um, when I do interviews is I just I just speak my mind. I, I speak what's uh, what's what's motivating me to train. And when I say that you know I want to become world champion, that I'm I'm telling you that that's what motivates me every day to go into that gym and uh, and work harder than ever. 
and uh, you know that that's why this world this world championship medal is such a huge deal to me. Um, but I think also a reason people don't uh, state their goals is because they they like to keep it foggy. So if they if they don't achieve that goal, then it's not such a big deal. And I feel like that's why I take my defeat so so hard. And that's why uh, after the Olympic Games final, when I fell, went went into the room and kicked the door off the hinges. <laughs> you know, I, I was so angry because I knew that that was my goal to go there and have a podium finish, and it didn't happen. But as long as I, as I said, don't let that continue into my training and into other competitions, then it won't be a problem. It'll only motivate me more. Well, now you've got the gold to, to back that up. like, And so that frees you from any burden of any of the past. And you do actually just look back at it as part of the motivation to get you to that first gold. It's 21, 20, 20 21 months to the Olympic Games in Paris. Uh, have you got every, every single second of every day mapped out to that? Or is there um, a little bit of time for that kind of uh, calendaring just yet? Yeah, well, we, we've got, um, I'm going to have two weeks off one or two weeks off here um, and that's much needed it's been a long long year um, a difficult year and it's, it's just one of those years where our competition season was just all year round this is the first time that I'm not in competition mode so I'm just going to enjoy living somewhat of a normal life mm-hmm. <laughs> socialise with my with my friends a little bit more and um, spend some family time as well it'll, it'll be nice coming up to coming up to Christmas with you know knowing I've got the job done this year haven't done my my greatest achievement ever, and um, yeah, live a bit of a normal life. Is your diet ridiculous? Do you have to like uh, load the calories on, or do you have to keep them off? Like, what, what? How do you balance your weight? How does that work? It's more about um, more about energy, really. So uh, I wouldn't really put on fat. I'd I'd probably say I have about eight percent body fat, um, I, and that's just because of the intensity of our training. That's the style of training that we do, where. Um, I would just burn off all of the calories. So, uh, you know, my nutritionist is always wanting me to to eat more, um, eat more carbohydrates because they would fuel me for my sessions. Um, and that that's more of the, the the aim behind my nutrition is fueling my sessions and then recovering afterwards. So, how, how many calories a day would you be eating? I I'll, I couldn't give you an honest answer. I don't I don't count calories. Right. I just find um, protein or carbohydrates because. I feel like I would get too obsessed about it. Okay. I would get too too involved in it and want to, to be, um, I think it would affect my gymnastics maybe. So I just, I let my nutritionist mm-hmm. do all the counting and she just recommends me big, um, big dietary requirements. And is that like, like lots, eat lots and lots and lots? Is that, are you basically eating yeah, all day? Yeah, pretty much. It's eat, eat more than I think or, or more than my, my stomach thinks as well. So I'm mm-hmm. filling myself um, quite, quite well in every meal or I try to anyway. Well, listen, uh, congratulations. Enjoy whatever the downtime brings you over the next couple of weeks. And, like, you know, the whole country is now invested emotionally in gymnastics. Apart from your achievement of being our first ever gold medalist and our greatest ever gymnast, you've turned the whole country on to a sport, which is kind of Katie Taylor-esque in its own way, Reese. Yeah, true. And it's always been one of my major goals in this sport is just to promote it, to, to give young people the opportunity that I've had and the joy that I take from this sport. And uh, I feel like this is... Uh, it's a it's a great opportunity to promote that. Yeah, good stuff, Reese. Thanks a million for joining us. Cheers. Thanks so much. It's uh, 
world champion Reese McClanahan there with his gold medal on the, the breakfast table. Nine minutes past eight this morning here on OTBA. I'm brought to you live with Gillette in association with Movember, Effortless Shave, Magnificent Mo. You can sign up or donate now at Movember.com. We're going to talk to Graham Hunter in a moment, but first I want to tell you, Braeburn Coffee is the official coffee partner of OTB. Each week we're giving one lucky viewer a €100 Euro voucher to spend on some Braeburn Coffee goodness at an Apple Green store near you to enter. Check out at Off The Ball on Twitter. Like and retweet our Braeburn competition post and you'll be in the draw. Braeburn Coffee never compromises on quality or taste to give you the very best on-the-go coffee experience on the road. It's available at Apple Green today. We're talking Jared Piquet next. OTB AM. This is OTB Sports Radio. Zebra going on his own. He gets the try. The Red 78. We're both monster people. Nobody knows monster rugby better. Carver gets over the line. Try from a... Available every Wednesday. Don't miss a moment of action. Subscribe to the Rugby Channel on the OTB Sports app and turn on your notifications now. OTB AM with Gillette in association with Movember. Effortless shave, magnificent mode. Ten minutes past eight. Graham Hunter is with us. Graham, good morning to you. Lads, morning. Uh, nice of the uh, European draws yesterday to fix it. So we've loads to talk about this morning. Before we get to the magnificent European draws, uh, Jared Pique has mid-season retired, and um, we were talking about the retirement video where it finishes with a, a delicate shot of him staring up at the president's box and we all know what the implication is here it's like oh, I'm coming back to rule over you baby uh, it's a remarkable end I guess but probably predictable in some ways I don't know what, what do you make of the whole thing nah, it's, it's shocking I agree with everything you've said um, it, in the actual event itself given that he played at Camp Now they won he played well the send off was not discreet but it was well handled everybody stayed the Camp Now was full it was buzzing he got the appreciation that somebody who's won two trebles and a World Cup, a European Championship, uh, repeat Champions League, somebody who's a local boy born with an, a long goal kick of the stadium, somebody whose grandfather was at the club long before he was born, a footballer of real, I mean, genuine class. People are arguing now about whether he's not just the greatest centre-half in the history of Barcelona, but in the history of... Spain, that's for other people to argue. I don't really care about charts like that. But, you know, it's 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 all wrong. It's fundamentally wrong. He is, um, particularly in the absence of Kunde and Araujo uh, while they've been uh, injured, he remains the solution to, to Barcelona's problems. Uh, he's been forced out partly because he, he's a pungent character, but most principally because he earns so much money at a time when the club is desperately desperately in need of saving wages, not just to save their outlays, but to balance financial far, fair play as far as La Liga is concerned next summer. Uh, the money that Gerard Piquet and Jordi Alba and Busquets earn jointly is is literally phenomenal. Busquets ends his contract this year. Piquet had another year of contract. Alba's got another year of contract. If we're honest, we're talking about them being you know, net up in the region of that 60 million in terms of what Barcelona can save if they get rid of those uh, three guys, those captains. Whether Alba goes, I have my doubts. But there's also deferred money owed to them, bonus money. Um, the contracts that were negotiated on the previous board were ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous. And therefore, what's happened is that they've played on, as you and Shane both know, they've, they've played on the fact that PK has always said, I'm not going to finish my career at Barcelona on the bench. I'm not going to hang around. 
I've got better things to be doing in my life. I want to get on with things. I should be playing. And if I'm not playing, I'll go. So they, they pushed Xavi to say, bench him. He was benched and he went. The fact remains that he is still uh, a footballer who should be in the team 90% of the weeks this season. The retirement should have come at the end of the season. He has the solutions, the experience, the height, the passing, that he can get over the fact that when he, because he's not been playing and he turns 36 next February, there have been the occasional mistake here and there. He is the guy that could have seen them towards the title, a title which is now at least in the mix again after Madrid's defeat at uh, Rayo Vallecano last night. Is there a possibility he ends up somewhere else playing football? No. No? Absolutely. Well, listen, because Pique is is the most um, extraordinary guy you could meet in football. Um, maybe I was too strong there, but he's always said that he will never now play for another football club. He's got... Um, dreams about what he does with Andorra, the club that he's president co-owner of, he's got dreams to do with the Davis Cup, he's got business investments to make, but he's also got a, a, a situation where he's split from his partner Shakira I don't follow or care much about the social lives and the personal lives of, of the great stars, but it's a fact that the, Shakira wants to move to Miami the two boys who were at the, the send-off match there against Almeria at the weekend, he wants to be near them so going and playing for another club simply because there's football or money on offer and, and seeing less of his boys just that won't happen if somebody actually came and persuaded him that you know he should go and play for Inter Miami or something like that then I suppose there's a 1% chance my bet is that he doesn't play uh, club football again after tonight um, when Barcelona travel to Pamplona to face Osasuna. When you say one of the most extraordinary people in football, <clears throat> Graham, uh, what do you mean by that? And, and, and what you know? What's the Jared Pique that you've come to know? Well, the Jared Pique I've come to know. People know their story. Shane, one example of the things that we've been the, the moments we've been involved together would have been on the night of the of Spain winning the World Cup final. I've been in the dressing room filming. Outside, it, Pique came out and still in boots, shorts, and his undershirt with a, a bottle of beer in his hand. Looking for the goal nets, he only had a little pair of you know nail scissors that go with clipping bandages from the doctor. Went down to the pitch, came back up, was furious. The nets had gone because they'd been celebrating so long. Nobody from FIFA or the stadium would help him. I decided to help him. We went on a grand tour of the stadium, the two of us. I shouldn't have been doing that, but he was angry and he was, he was getting a little bit tetchy. And I thought, there's a situation brewing here. And after a long odyssey of a journey that I won't go into, but had incidents of its own, we ended up in the manager... Um, of the stadium in his office and there was a little worker there a guy in a little anorak you know, a, a real job's worth more than my job's worth and he, he did a sort of poker tell you know PK's a, a, a big poker man Shane with you know hundreds of thousands being bet on, on, on his career and he, he did a little tell that, no it's not here and looked down there and there was a big cardboard <laughs> box like that and, and the guy ran as we were talking to pick up the box and try and lock it in a cupboard and PK said to me like this is PK on the night of the World Cup final winning he said listen I'll punch him you grab the nets and we'll run for it and, and I promise you that was serious he was furious he wanted his nets just won the World Cup and you won't let me clip a little panel of net and it went off and there were officials in the office and they threatened to sack me and PK was absolutely raging and I'll punch him, you take the nets and we'll run. It sounds like it's from an Ealing comedy or something like that, but I use that as an example of what he's up to. He's ferocious, he's aggressive, 
he really, I mean, listen, it's, it's annoying. He's, he pisses people off. The, the board, he's been a nightmare for the board. They've tried to put exclusion clauses in his contract, but what he can, he can't do. Shane, which other footballer brings a quarter of a billion in sponsorship to the front of a, a jersey of, of a major club in the world? The club couldn't do it, but PK could. Which other player in your lifetime, football player, has gone out and bought the Davis Cup? I could go on and on and on and on and on. But in terms of his mind, his aggression, his the, the way he'll sneer at players who aren't up to his teammates, who aren't his standards, aren't bright enough. He's a haughty, difficult, aggressive, brilliant, competitive, challenging man. And he's already, at 35, a businessman of extraordinary stature. And I think in those terms, at least, I think he dwarfs anybody else that's gone before him in, in, in modern football, full stop. So is there an obvious path to power at Barcelona or will it be something different, do you think? Yeah, that's a, that's a hard question to answer. I still refer you to the, the point about his two boys. Um, people have been talking about the campaign has started already. Well, if, if Shakira gets custody and moves them to Miami, then Jared Piquet temp- momentarily, temporarily being looking to, to run the club in, in Catalonia seems to me to be something that I, I'm unsure about. The path to glory is that Barcelona is still owned by its members. There are elections. It's guaranteed that certain a president can only stand to mandates. There, are, there must be elections every five years. There, there will come a time when his personal situation and his business situation allows him to put himself forward for the presidency. Whether that's immediately or not is something that I don't know as a fact. I wouldn't claim to know unless I did, then I'd tell you. Um, short term, I think Laporta is, is probably safe. And it would be very like PK not to sit and wait and be ordinary until the financial situation is better and Barcelona have been in Montjuic where they're, they're scheduled to move this summer. So the seasons in Montjuic, big clubs without their own stadium tend to be horrible places, traumatic places. The, the, the time you're outside the stadium or the time you're living in the stadium, it's been built, that always elongates. Normal people would say, I'll tell you when I want to be president, it's when the good times are back. That's not the way PK thinks. It would be typical of him to say, now, when the club knows, most needs me, now I'm, he doesn't do it for ego. He certainly doesn't do it to please people or for adulation. He does it because he's got a vision. So I think he would like to be taking over promptly, but I don't think his family situation allows that. I think we've got a little bit of time, and then in due course, health allowing, we'll see President PK. All right, going to be very interesting to, to follow that career and see what happens in in the meantime. Um, I, I do want to. Um, so the the Liverpool Real Madrid draw. I think Shane, you were making the joke, or somebody's making the joke earlier on about how got to be careful what you wish for when you're Florentino Perez. I want to play the big teams more often. Like, okay, we're going to fix that now for you, Florentino. Straight away, we're going to get you two games against Liverpool, exactly what you wanted in the European Super League. Uh, against that backdrop, right? Um, today, Manchester City have announced record profits and record revenue. They're the second highest uh, revenue generators in the history of English football. Manchester United beat them a couple of seasons ago, the last season before COVID, I think. Um, and FSG made their um, slightly Jesuitical statement yesterday about looking for more investment. But, you know, if somebody wants to buy the whole thing, that might also be on the table, definitely. Um, knowing all that, this is kind of a roundabout way to ask you about the, the ownership of Liverpool and and where the game is going at the moment. Um, 
we're definitely watching an era of um, the the biggest billionaires uh, being trumped by nation states. Have you have you any thoughts on the Liverpool takeover? Yes, I could. Have, I mean, it's not on a complicated subject. You've you've asked it in a in a complicated way because first of all, you you're comparing it with a country where two of the leading clubs are still member run. Florentino Perez is treated like an owner and acts like an owner. But in theory, he still needs to be elected. And, and given his age, there'll come a stage whereby change will occur at Real Madrid. And I remember across all the 20-something years that you and I have been broadcasting together on this station, there have been halcyon times when everybody in Ireland or Scotland or England is saying, well, membership ownership is, is the only way to go. And, and then you get an idiot like Bartomeu ruining football club Barcelona. In terms of state and billionaire ownership of, of clubs, particularly in the Premier League, we've passed the point of no return. I, I fail to imagine a governing body or a government which will say, this is how football clubs, we're going to enact law such that football clubs can't be owned in this manner. And for, for so long as individuals, corporations, or nation states feel that there are benefits beyond returns. You talked about Manchester City's financial returns that they announced the other day. However you want to phrase it, there are extremely different reasons why the people that own Paris Saint-Germain and own Liverpool and own Chelsea and own Manchester City and own Manchester United are in the game. Now, in terms of Manchester United, the people who own them, I think, are in it for their own personal financial gain. The majority of the rest of them, either like Bowley, I think, believe that they're in it for a little bit of fun, a little bit of uh, ego, and potentially Fenway, for example, bought at a very low price, and are gonna, if they sell, they're going to sell at a big profit. But it's it's about growing the the brand, growing the club selling, uh, you know, buying short and selling long. Yearly profits, that's something that the Glazers have done because of their model of how they, personal profit, how they how they run the club. So there's, even though we're now talking about um, very different in all the clubs we've named in the Premier League from the way that Barcelona and Real Madrid are owned and run, there's a wide variety of reasons that people are in for it. And if nation states believe that they can help their image or change the way that people perceive them or make people come and visit them on holiday. I see absolutely no way back from this, either from the Premier League, the FA, or any putative future UK government. Yeah, I, I would tend to agree. And I think that Liverpool fans need to be a little bit anxious about new potential investment, where it's going to come from, new potential owners, where it's going to come from. There's always a, a royal family who has another member who's a separate company, and so therefore it's not the same thing, but actually, you know, they're they're related somewhere along the way. Um, and, you- and, 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 and the, you know, I, I, I don't want to pick on some of the Liverpool fans who I've seen going, well, if this is good, or family aren't spending enough, or our current dip is because, <clears throat> as far as I can tell, talking, looking at their football, watching their trophy lifts, but talking to their staff, in general, family have been extremely good owners in terms of particularly backing the department that chooses how to select managers, how to sell players, how to buy players. 
there's been a full integration of we know you're experts, we'll fund you to the degree we're willing to, and then we'll leave you to get on with it and well done and here's support and let's review. And while Liverpool fans are, are ticked off because none of us have got any patience now about the current situation and a lot of wise people I see going, well, I knew. And in the time that Fenway have been in charge of Liverpool, they've done a damn good job of supporting the, the the people who run it locally, either in terms of organisation, scouting, or the football side, they've been they've been good owners that have utterly changed the, the recent fortunes of Liverpool Football Club. So you're right. Um, what happens next? Like you said about Florentino, be careful what you wish for. Mm. Um, the defeat last night that Real Madrid suffered to uh, Vallecano, it, um it wasn't that much of a shock. Shock was it? Totally a shock. Given Vallecano not been pretty good recently, Tony Cruz was out. I think. Chris was out, Benzema was out um, in recent matches, let's set the Celtic game aside where Celtic went out and played toe-to-toe and got spanking because Madrid love games like that, it was all very entertaining and you can see that Ange Postacoglu is very consistent in what he asks there isn't criticism in my voice of it but in, in recent matches, um, particularly home draws, you've seen Madrid's level intensity dropping a little bit so no Benzema, no cross against the side on a very tight pitch and a very hostile, very colourful stadium. The idea that they might lose was not ludicrous. The fact that they would lose three goals and lose in that manner, I think, has been a little bit surprising. And the degree to which they were they were outfought, outcompeted. You, you can you can find Rayo by a kind of ferocious and what's more, Rayo a really a lookout for uh, their coach um, Raola ex-athletic in Spain rightful back Manchester City group I had him for a little while at, at New York that, that guy's a proper proper coach really really special uh, United Barca in the Europa League as well Graham quite an interesting draw um, can I just ask you one aspect on that something that struck me at the weekend was and it's it's a bit of a, bit of a query over here the fact that um, David De Gea has been one of the bright Sparks for United in recent games, uh, the last three or four games, albeit conceding three at the weekend. But um, he's not been named in, in Spain's fifty-five man squads, which would suggest that you know they think that there's four goalkeepers better off than him. So, look, he's a man who played every game in the twenty eighteen World Cup, so it seems like a bit of a fall from grace. But was it a, is it a surprise in Spain that that he's not in the reckoning for the World Cup? I don't know. I don't know if it's a fall from grace if you're not in one World Cup four years after the other one, Shane. Yeah. And I think that. Look, you, 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 you're you're right in that when a goalkeeper is playing well for a couple of games for Manchester United, he's going to get local press. But you've seen you've seen Luis Enrique Martinez long enough to know that that's not how he operates. Mm. He doesn't say, "Well, boy, the, the, that fella's had a couple of good games. I'm now going to forget the things that I didn't like about him." So, in terms of De Gea's form over the last couple of years. There's been criticism around him from Manchester United. He's talked about himself needing to improve. Originally, it was thought that he was good enough with his feet to make him special beyond his saves. There was a time when Luis Enrique thought that too. Luis Enrique wasn't in charge in Russia, remember. Now, the, the goalkeepers he's picked, it is absolutely paramount that they are brilliant with their feet. He's as um, insistent as Pep Guardiola is that, it's, that the team is 11 footballers and that the 11th man is also an exceptional goalkeeper. Now, whether or not having seen enough of the, your man at uh, Brentford or um, Sanchez at, at Brighton, neither um, in terms of big pressure matches in the Premier League, nor for Spain, whether during Qatar people are ultimately going to say, well, coach, you got it wrong, the hair should have been there. That's a different debate. 
But Luis Enrique Martinez, Shane, is extremely consistent in what he does and doesn't want. And once you're out, particularly in the goalkeeping role, it, it tends to be a very long road back. And I'm in no way surprised that he won't be in the list on 11th of November. Frankie de Jong finally heading to Old Trafford as well. It's, a, it's an intriguing tie in a number of ways, Graham. Well, Boom. Um, yeah. Just remember, he's the one who, who stopped the whole thing, didn't want it to happen, said I'm not coming. Um, yeah, it's an interesting tie. And, you know, I speak to Chabby um, outside press conferences and, and that's a little privilege and I like him very much and, and appreciate the very much that we've got a guy of his vision and his ideas back in football. Doesn't, doesn't have to be a bus owner for my taste. I, I think well of him. Occasionally, he's still a little bit naive. He's ah, oh, the worst team we could have got. It's happened again. You know, it was, it was what was it? Galatasaray, Napoli, Eintracht Frankfurt last season. You know, Galatasaray away, Napoli away, plus the, the ultimate winners. We were a group this season. This is his words, not mine. Inter and Bayern Munich. And yesterday he went, and now we've got United. Gee, thanks. The worst team. You don't say that. You don't say. You never say that. <laughs> It's going to be fun. Um, on form, Barcelona are becoming more interesting. In Europe, they've looked porous at the back. Yes, there's a danger that they get knocked out. I think it's going to be a beautiful tie. February is further away than it should be, normally speaking, in November because of this World Cup. And therefore, I haven't got the faintest idea who goes through. And, and you can use that clip over and over again for the rest of my life. But it's the same. It's the same with the Liverpool Real Madrid. It's like who knows who who is going to still be fit when these teams meet. Yep. And like it, so, we were we were talking about this yesterday with Nana Manua. If if Man City have to uh, reintegrate those English players after the state, let's just say they've won a World Cup. Like we, we were whispering it, you know, uh, lest it you know not three times make sure it doesn't happen. I, I said I said I have no idea about um, <laughs> but I do have an idea about that. No chance. Right. Well, just just imagine having to get Phil Foden and Jack Grealish back playing football after a week on the complete piss. Like, they could take a couple of months off if they were to win it. Something stronger than that, so long as you don't want me off the, off the air. I, over my career, um, in an interview once with Zidane, and because um, Shirley was a Chelsea player and I was at the Chelsea training ground interviewing, and the staff told me, those players, uh, Zidane talked about needing six months to even come to terms with having won the World Cup in 98. Lost, didn't know what was happening, The uh, uh, putting in the same effort, not getting the same returns. Shirley went to his staff and said, I have no idea why I'm playing rubbish, I'm training as hard. And this was nothing to do with celebrations or alcohol or, 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 or mentally going, I'm a world champion, I'm going to take a couple of months off. The two of them in particular were talking about the effect that that life-changing impact has on you is beyond your own control. Now, maybe not every player will be like that, but in some of the clubs that we generically talk about and in some of the clubs we're talking about right now, there probably should be World Cup winners. So as you point out, irrespective of, you you were talking about going on the lash in England, but there's something much, much more profound than, than even, it's, it's not about tiredness, it's about state-changing impact that sometimes elite footballers have no idea what's going on or how to cope with it. Yeah, great point. I hadn't even thought of that. Like, if Vinicius scores the winner in the World Cup final, it's like you, you're ascending onto an entirely different plane. How do you come back down and then be at Anfield looking around you going, your man's kicking me, but I just won the World Cup. Like, I don't really care about this tonight. Or else he comes right, back and is right. like, I'm going to score a hat-trick tonight because I'm the greatest thing of all time. It'll be, it'll, the impact, in my opinion, will be 
But the players you're talking about in England, you know, away to Fulham, away to Brentford, oh, God, here we go again. And do we have to go down there? Or a cup game up at Carlisle or in Spain, it'll be like, gee, do we have to get our legs kicked off down at Almeria? Or it's all the way up north to the Basque country where it's frost again. And that's where I think the the the, 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 the gear change where you can't, you're like, what's happening to me? Why? I'm, I want this, but it's not there. That's that's where I think the impact comes, and and given the way we talk about, and given the way that the Champions League inevitably will feature the type of players, footballers we're talking about, there are also going to be several footballers who are going there right now, genuinely believing they're going to win, and who won't. Some will react with, right, I'll show you for the rest of the season, and some will be sitting sucking their thumb in the corner, moping. Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, we haven't a clue what's going to happen in the second half of this season. It is going to be wild. Graham, brilliant to have you with us. Thanks a million. Lads. Uh, Graham Hunter there giving us some... That's a, I hadn't thought about that. Well, and, Spain are more likely to win the World <clears> Cup. <throat> so then all of a sudden, uh, United and, and Liverpool are going, oh, these lads will be... Are Spain more likely than England? I would have thought so, yeah. I, I don't know what the, what the bookies think, but geez, surely... I think we're all sleeping on how good England are, unfortunately. Right. 8.34 this morning, OTVAM brought to you live with Gillette in association with Movember. Effortless shave, magnificent Mo. You can sign up or donate now at Movember.com. Up next, we're live in studio with none other than Eric Donovan, fresh from his retirement announcement at the end of last week. First, here's the Athletics' Matt Slater on last night's show, talking with Joe about Newcastle United's unbelievable form. It is going to be interesting what reception uh, the new buyer gets from fans, because the American investment group... Well, politically, they may be more acceptable. Uh, they do come uh, front and centre with the message that we're here to make money and we don't have any emotional attachment to your club. Uh, we're Bahrain to turn up with gazillions and say, we are going to turn you guys into the Harlem Globetrotters. Uh, I, I th- it, it, it's such an interesting question. Liverpool fans uh, have had a certain... Um, uh, I, I don't know what uh, engagement know what with the, the, the politics <laughs> yeah. beyond football and, and pride themselves on it I think and pride themselves yep. on a sense of community and, and pride themselves on values it would be quite something to uh, see them uh, wearing the headscarves uh, a la the Newcastle fans on, on uh, you know inaugural day of the new regime it's hard to imagine from this vantage point but then again gazillions are gazillions indeed look yeah. no, Newcastle's a left leaning city too um Liverpool's famous sort of you know, sort of trade unions. Of course, there's a you know, spirit of Shankly. Um, it, it does seem a weird cultural fit to me. And I think one of the things about Newcastle, of course, is that it was very much in opposition to the previous owner. Yeah. You know, they, they hated Ashley so much. And the entire city and region felt, felt a bit left behind and, and ignored. Similar arguments in Liverpool, of course. But... Um, my sports group have been pretty good owners mm. so there isn't this sort of like we are we're, we've been ignored we've been badly run we we just we're just looking for a savior i don't i don't think liverpool fans you know i i wouldn't have much time for them if that's what they were saying mm. frankly as a, as a neutral here and they're not so fine so i yeah i i i, I agree with what you're saying I, I i just sense this is you know americans selling to americans i know it's a bit easy yeah uh they've hired goldman sachs morgan stanley I, I just I just think that's where this is going. Here we go. It's uh, 8.37, and I'm delighted to say former boxer Eric Donovan is with us. <laughs> How are you doing? I'm very well, Jared. Thanks for having me. Yeah, delighted to be here. How is it uh, settling with you now that you've made your announcement? Yeah, a lot of people are saying to me, like, it must have been tough, and, you know, um, do you feel sad and all those things? And, you know, there's an element of truth in that. You know, I am a bit sad, and it is tough, 
but it's the right time and I'm going out you know with um, peace of mind you know I came back in I, I turned professional in at the start with a load of regrets because I felt like I I felt like I felt unfulfilled let's say but I'm going out of it now with absolutely no regrets and peace of mind and I think it's the right time Was it in your head before this fight uh, or or was it after the fight because I, I think it's really important that we talk about the fact you had a baby at the same yeah. time as this like, yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a life changing moment at any stage absolutely uh, yeah. but um, particularly when you're a fighter and um, it's such a difficult business I, I, like, I don't think anybody unless you've actually been to a fight uh, you don't really fully appreciate the punishment that fighters take mm. until you see it mm. aftermath in the in, in the aftermath just how difficult it is for your body to recover yeah and um anyway so i'm i'm what do you, what's the story yeah no that's you're right you know it's a brutal sport you know it's really really tough and i suppose even though i kind of thought that like i kind of knew that before i turned professional it's still even more difficult than you can imagine because I was an amateur boxer for years. You know, I, from the age of seven, I walked into a boxing club, and you know, by the age of early teenage years, I was I was getting picked to represent Ireland at schoolboy level. You know, so thirteen, fourteen, I'm representing Ireland, and by the age of seventeen, I'm in with the national team, the elite senior team. So, um, and I spent ten years there. So I was twenty seven, twenty eight when I kind of unofficially retired from the amateur game. Um, and during that kind of I had a three year kind of sabbatical so uh, but I was watching a lot of boxing doing the odd bit of training and um, I I was full of regret as I said so I used to ponder down you know my my mind was uh, pondering back down memory lane from time to time and I was thinking I could have done that and I could have done this a third place to be like for anybody you know and I went back into education as well as as you know and I was I was studying counselling and psychotherapy at the time and I graduated with a diploma in 2015. And I was very, you know, delighted with that because that was huge for me, you know, not coming from a, you know, an educa- educated background or, you know, having any academic skills. That was a huge moment for me. And I said, right, momentum's with me now. I'm going to go for my degree one more year, you know, and really push the bar, you know. And um, But then I also was kind of, um, what would you say, uh, bombarded with these thoughts of, of past regrets you know what I mean and past near misses and setbacks and all that and the conclusion I came to was look I gotta answer this call you know because if I don't I'm gonna be living the rest of my life you know probably a bitter angry old man you know Um, and that was it the conclusion was I can always go back and do my degree but I can't always I can't always go back and box so at 31 I turned pro when most people are wrapping up their careers at 31 and into a game like a brutal sport professional game and I had absolutely no major goals but in the back of my mind I was like an Irish title would be brilliant you know it would be class you know and I was doing a lot of punditry as well so I said like I'll be able to speak in the punditry kind of position or the the punditry role with expert, you know, analysis as well. Um, So, you know, once I got going and I got a bit of momentum going, I got a few fights under my belt and obviously I won the Irish title, but I I kind of felt like I had a lot more than I thought I did have, but I knew I was in a tough game as well. And uh, so I I pushed the bar out and for the last three or four years, I've been 
telling everybody my goal is to become a European champion and that can be like a, a very tricky thing to do very risky thing to do because we're putting ourselves out there to be scrutinised to be either glorified or to kind of be slammed and you know Reese, your, your last uh, Reese uh, McLennan McLennan yeah. he's brilliant like you know and I was just listening to that interview and you know I think it's important that we kind of like you know, we set these goals for ourselves, but don't be afraid of, of you know, don't be afraid of, of announcing them and, and letting people know. And anyway, f- for me, look, it was a happy, a happy ending. You know, it was, um, the, I think, the professional chapter in my life from 31 to 37, six and a half years has been a success story. You know, I had some big fights, some big losses on yeah. big stages, but... <clears throat> Ultimately, I reached my goal. I know. I see. I I was like really, you know, desperately concerned if you didn't make it, what the outcome would be. <laughs> yeah. so, you know, because you you did put all the eggs in that basket, and I think it would still have been a success story if you hadn't got the the mm. if you hadn't won your last fight, because for, like your your story isn't just about trying to win the belt. Mm. Your story was you you framed it as a redemption story, mm. right? And that's because you were coming back from dark places. Mm. And whether or not you won or lost, that was a judgment on the night. Yeah. But the judgment on your life is that you've come back from those dark places. Yeah. Yeah, like I've heard many people saying, like, you know, you've already cemented your your your, your legacy or your name in the books and history books from your amateur pedigree and your amateur career. And I'm just saying... You didn't oh. buy it, did you? No, I, I didn't because I kind of felt like, even though I'm a European medalist as a, as an amateur, and you're, like that's world class, you know, that's a world class level because the European uh, continent is one of the strongest continents in, in boxing, you know. Um, and uh, so, like... I just didn't, but I just I felt unfulfilled, especially missing out on the Olympics and and everything. And and then nowadays, amateur boxers, you can see them on YouTube. YouTube screen everything, you know. But when I was boxing in the amateur days, I think I might have boxed on RT once or twice in the senior final. So yeah. there wasn't a lot of apart from the boxing community, people like people in the boxing community knew exactly what I'd done. Uh, but the general public had no real kind of understanding. Um, but now I kind of feel like. Okay, I've I have redeemed myself, and I have shown, uh, I have fulfilled. You know what I mean? Fulfilled. So the fulfillment know. comes from the outcome, in a way. Like, yeah, and that's a separate thing, really, from like you know, changing your life to the point where you're able to be the man you are now. Mm. Like when I look at like growing up, like when I was an amateur, I looked at Kennedy Egan, I looked at you know Darren Sutherland, Michael Conlon, Paddy Barnes, or you know, obviously Katie Taylor, and I just thought like. I never in the same bracket as them, you know, because they were, you know, they were like achieving their household names or whatever. And I, I always kind of was like in awe of them, you know, but at the same time feeling very um, sad and depressed because of my own issues. And I couldn't overcome them, you know, or I couldn't address them. I didn't know how to seek out the help, how to ask for help. Um, what changed with that? Like, how did you fix that? Um I suppose, yeah, that's a great question. I suppose you just it, you just get to a stage where you become overwhelmed by it, like that there is no, it's like a, a boiling pot, you know, the lid just ready to burst, you know, and that's what I was like, you know. I used to suppress an awful lot of emotions and feelings and um, you think you're doing the right thing, but, you know, you can't solve a problem by running away from a problem. The problem is not going to go away, you know, but I realised that today, but I used to suppress everything and then... They they would come out in a very unhealthy and toxic way, whether it's through drink or drugs or whatever, and it'd be just kind of, you know, an explosion, a big episode, and then it'd be again try and regroup, regroup, and then another big explosion. But I realized, like, when I got to a certain stage in life, that you know, these emotions, these feelings, these 
these um, the energy inside these are very much a part of my being in every way like you know and I cannot run away from them anymore and I can't ignore them this wasn't connected to success or failure in boxing this is like just real life right real life yeah it's, human it's life, separate yeah. it's uh, boxing was kind of in some ways uh, a little bit of uh, what would you say uh, a bit of solace in all of this you know what I mean it was respite you know sometimes yeah. when I went to boxing I was free I was free from the, the madness of my own mind and um, free from uh, you know the feelings the emotions and it just used to go into a boxing mode you know and then that kind of do you, do, do you, to, a cover up to get to the point you are now do you have to go back and, and ask what caused the madness in your mind or or do you just have to learn to cope with the fact that there is a bit of madness in all of us yeah with, with <laughs> that's very true there is a bit of madness in us all a bit of good in, in the worst of us a bit of bad in the best of us as well do you know but I I I did have to, first of all, ad- take ownership. You know, that's the first thing. Like, you cannot solve a problem if you don't see it, if you don't think it's there, if you don't acknowledge it, you know. So I was in denial for a long, long time, you know, with a lot of stuff, you know, that I, I suppose I never really took full acceptance of what was going on for me. And I always blamed, in a way, kind of directed it towards maybe different areas, you know, different things. It was because of this or because of that, you know, and... And then eventually, I, t- I had to say, look, it's, it's me, you know. There's a great, there's a famous quote from Marty Rubin, a Canadian uh, author. It says, uh, the truth is what's left when you run out of excuses, you know. And that's what it was for me. And I was kind of left with my raw, vulnerable self. And then at that stage, you're kind of like, well, which way do I go now? Do I jump off or do I ask for help? And, you know, I asked, I asked for help, you know. And, and that was the, the beginning of... A whole new avenue for me, a whole new life, a, re- a redemption story. Are you allowing yourself a bit of nostalgia now, Eric? Like, are you thinking back in the last few days to walking into St. Michael's Boxing Club in Athai for the first time? Is it, yeah. Has it just even hit you yet? Like, it's probably like the, the winning the European title. It probably takes a bit of time to realise that you're, you're retired and finished. Yeah, it's, no, it's really, really, um, it's incredible. And even when I think back to the Boxing Club in Athai, what that done for me, like, you know, that was a real game changer for me. It gave me direction, it gave me purpose, it gave me... You know, it was my education, really. You know, it got me out of town. I definitely wouldn't have left the Thai town if it wasn't for the club, you know, because, like I said, school wasn't uh, an area that I, I, I really, don't, you know, done well in. And, you know, a Thai is a working-class town. You know, education and sport are very important down there, you know, to, to really move out of it and, uh, and do well for yourself. So the boxing club, even though at times it became an annoyance for me too because I tried to run away from the club so many times because it was getting in the way of this... You know, the the life I want to live with the boys and the girls hanging around and dossing and messing and whatnot, but that's when the coach, Dom, would, would follow me around. You know? Would he literally come to your house? Yes, and she say, would, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Pulled me out of a house party and everything before we got, because I promised him I'd fight in a show, you know, and I went missing, you know, and he pulled me out of his house party, brought me to the boxing show. So I, I even still boxed, you know what I mean? Yeah. And I remember getting out of the ring. It was an open air show in Mullingar, and I, and I remember getting out of the ring and I fell asleep in my boots and all my gear at ringside afterwards. But uh, just, the, yeah, but like so grateful, like, and lucky that I had that kind of. Um, so I, I still think that I. I'm, I'm sorry to labour this point. You fixed something that most people don't get to fix, mm. right? 
and so I, I, I we're from the same town I, yeah. I, I, I know what you're talking about I know the corners that you would have been standing on yeah. and, and I know the <clears throat> the school system didn't work properly mm. for you mm. and I like how did you how did you survive that They're like what yeah. where's the bit where you, you you get the strength to ask for help mm. or even know how to ask for help mm. that's a good one you know um, I suppose uh you know I heard someone say before the crack is where the light gets in you know what I mean and sometimes you know I put up a f- good fight for a very long time you know about like uh, trying to hold on to this way you know and trying not to um, trying trying to deflect basically mainly for for most of my life but I used to I remember many times a lot of tears a lot of a lot of really sad times, you know, especially sitting down with the family, like, you know, here I go again, how did this happen, and that kind of stuff. And Because you'd cause trouble. Yeah, but, but like mainly the trouble would be just like my own really um, incompetence, like just really uh, slipping up or messing up, and then I'd be devastated again, depressed, probably said something I didn't mean, probably did something I did, shouldn't have done, that kind of stuff. And then always, it always led to guilt, Remorse, shame, embarrassment, and you know whether it was internal or external, it was all you know. And it was just I became sick and tired of being sick and tired. And I used to look at everybody else and think, how are they doing it? You know, wanted to be like everybody else, like normally, like normally socialising, normally having a drink, going out, coming home, this kind of stuff. And it just wouldn't work for me, you know. Like I, I couldn't do it, you know. Even like if I had one drink, I'd be just like you know yeah. wired, <laughs> like you know, it had a different effect on me. Um, are we and still living in a tighter stage? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, and then, like, I didn't even realise, this is because you asked a very good question, I didn't even realise that there is support out there in the way that it was and the way that it is. Like, as, like for me, it was just, a, 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 if you can't sort this out yourself, you're screwed, you know? Yeah. And that's why... At one stage, I actually felt that maybe I'd be better off not being here, you know, because I thought like, you know, I'm just a burden. I'm, you know, I'm just letting people down, let me coach on it, my family down and maybe it's better off. Maybe I'm better off not being here. Like that's. And how easy it is for that to happen. Oh, my God. Like it's so like so very real, very real. And the other know? thing is that it's so common that like, I don't know, I'm, I'm in our class, there were people who died by suicide and the town has been unfortunately plagued by it. Yeah. So it's right there. Like yeah. the, there are examples of it. And that's why I think it's important to labor on this, because like it's possible. Mm. It's really possible. And I, there's so much in this story, you know, like, yeah, um, there's a lot in it. Yeah. And, and again, the boxing at the time was giving me the only kind of credibility and you know kind of respect that, that I felt that was valued in me you know because outside an identity an identity and outside of that like I used just felt like a nobody a waster you know and and that's that, a very that's, dangerous place to be that's how society views people yeah. who are from working class areas yeah. that we we decide yeah. as a country and yeah. as a people no there's no value here yeah and like yeah. I think it's it's a real it's a real difficult place for us it to is. be in you know, we, we talk about the footballers going across the water as well like you know the, the sun you know promise you know the sun moon and stars you know and then it doesn't work out for them and after spending four or five years maybe you know development years you know over there and they're coming back tail between their legs what do they do feel like a waste feel like a loser you know and that for me that's I had a kind of a very 
a difficult relationship with boxing for a while and with myself because I kind of then was angry with boxing because I felt like I'm only a boxer you know yeah, yeah. and boxing would consume me to the level of like you know who you know d- didn't know much about values and that kind of stuff and but when I asked for the help initially Ger it opened the door to a whole new avenues a whole new world now, I won't say it's easy because it doesn't happen overnight but like that was the beginning of the process. You know, I started to learn about addiction. I started to learn about mental health, emotional health. I understood why we do the things we do. You know, why I kept doing the things I did, you know. Um, and then I learned more therapeutic and holistic approaches to the self-destructive ones I was using before. And I was like, okay, this is a bit easier. This is a bit easier. This is a bit easier. And then during that process, you start to discover what Eric is. Eric the, the man, the human being. Yeah. And I didn't care about boxing. But th- when I got back in touch with Eric and started to grow, uh, really grow and develop, that's when I opened the door to going back to fulfilling some unanswered boxing questions. Does this happen in your mid-twenties? Like after, so the boxing finishes as an amateur and you're bitter about that. Is there then that period of like... Mm self-reflection or um, a despair and yeah. then the self-reflection comes after that 2012 was the, the time I, I, I went into recovery for the first time and uh, after that the summer of 2012 I helped Katie Taylor out for the Olympic Games went to the training camp in, in Assisi when that was over I kind of didn't know what to do threw my, threw my name in the hat for the World Series of Boxing see what would happen I got called I got picked by who? none other than Kazakhstan So, and the difference in Kazakhstan and all the other franchises was they wanted you out there indefinitely Like for the whole, there, there's no kind of train at home go out and buy. so I went out there for like nearly 8 months or something like you know and out there I learned so much about myself you know because that was in the early stages of my recovery and I had a lot of good support from back home people calling me ringing me doing Skype calls and all that but out there I really grew up like I really so you're sober developed. yeah right. yeah yeah. and um, and uh, it was incredible and then when I got back from there I just I kind of retired from boxing I unofficially went back into education so t- I was 27 28 going on uh, 27 going on 28 when I kind of unofficially retired and then I was 31 when I came back turned professional but during that three year period I did a lot of personal growth a lot of development and it was that's when I realised that maybe you know maybe I can do something here <laughs> and you know it's kind of crazy When you talk Eric about being like you know embarrassed or ashamed of your past or whatever you're, you're like, it's amazing because you're speaking to so many people who've felt that emotion of which there are plenty as well yeah. but like I've heard you say in, in recent times as well that you, you now see your past as an asset which I think is mm. that's just a that's just a mm. emotional shift in your own thinking I guess was it? Yeah oh definitely and most people would most people that going around depressed that would come from similar backgrounds or whatever probably feel the same way as I used to feel and I message I try and get across to them is that like you know you know you're not the I, I who was it I heard saying this I think it might have been Brezzy or Jerry Hussey or something that said you're not the worst thing you ever done you know what I mean some people go around feeling bad like you know they might have made a mistake or they might have but like that doesn't define you you know um we're not responsible for the life we are given, but we are responsible for the life we are living. That's the key, you know. So we're all born into whatever, you know, whatever areas of life. And, you know, you kind of develop skills to kind of 
navigate your way through that survival techniques or whatever survival skills but when you get to an adult you know you probably don't need many of those skills anymore you can go on a different route or whatever route you choose but you just have to be brave and, and ask for that kind of help and direction and and that's it yeah but I don't, yeah. I, I don't want to distill your yeah. entire career down to just a couple of minutes but like you've got the belt sitting in front of us here and like yeah. that El Hadri fight um, the 10th round particularly I think mm. for anyone who watches it back I mean that 10th round was just it was manic is that the most defining few minutes of your of your career yeah many people have said to me after the fight the 10th round man unbelievable and I'm like yeah was it yeah I did like you know I'm fighting on instinct yeah, yeah. so um I had to watch it when I got home myself and then when I was watching I was like oh jeez like I, I know exactly what they're talking about now and uh, yeah it, it's incredible you know I train so hard like I train hard 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 like I put my body on the line all the time put my body through the mill the track sessions the strength sessions and and you know here's the thing as well over these last kind of particularly this last year or two I've been doing prehab and rehab before and after every training session and it's so annoying but that's the I 37 I had to do that um, so grateful for the physio uh, Vicky McGinn physiotherapy and draw that Sean Kilroy strength and my strength and conditioning coach and then obviously with Packy as well in the Celtic Warriors everything had to be meticulous every single thing and I worked so hard so I knew it was in the bank I and I always always knew that there was one big performance in me you know I nearly pulled it off against Barrett you know it didn't get close against Ramirez but I just knew there was something left there because I knew that all of the work and all of the life experience and all it, it had to be for something and um and I was just so grateful that I could pull it off in that fight. And in that 10th fight, like, I didn't... People looking at me were like, I thought you were on the verge of being stopped. But I didn't feel like that in there. Like, I actually felt like I was always in the fight. I knew it was tough. Yeah. But I never felt like I was ready to, to, to bow out or anything, you know? It's funny because you, you, you talk about it being a, almost a blur. Like, can you take yourself back into your head in that fight at the speed of thought? Or is it a case of you just can't remember it, the entire thing I tell you I was so relieved when I got there and when I won it and I was really elated and buzzed and all the people around me my family my you know my wife my children my children were there they saw me getting you know really bad defeats against Barrett and, and Ramirez and I used to tell them like you know afterwards you know sometimes we lose in life you know but we have to keep going and I try to always give them lessons of life through my own lessons, you know. And uh, so they were ringside for this greatest victory for me. And my youngest son, Troy, 10, 10 years of age, spotted blood come out and hit him on the forehead. Like, you know what I mean? Like that kind of stuff. That's how close they were. And I was just so happy to be able to do it, like for them as well as, you know, if, like even my wife, after the Ramirez fight, I didn't think I'd even box again. I spoke to Joe and I was like, you know, I could be done here, you know. But she had me to pick myself back up. Like, so you set your goal, you know what I mean? You have to go, you know. So a lot of people helped me out, like, you know. And then, of course, you just have to keep picking yourself up and go again and go again. And sometimes we don't know how close we are to actually turning a corner or making it work yeah. in this case. You know, I, I, I was very close, you know, from the Ramirez fight was in February. This was September. What's that? Seven months or something? Was there any part of you after the fight that was like, yeah, I'm going to go again? Uh, or was it oh, fairly yeah. quickly you were like, do you know what? Okay. No, that's, I, I, that's, no that's great because like, I, I, you wouldn't believe it. At 37, here I am retired and I have so many opportunities 
and like po- possibilities if I wanted them, you know. And I'm like, where were you <laughs> a few years ago? But anyway, like even Punchestown Event Centre in Kildare, you know, wanting to host me, draw yeah. the United, United Park in 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 draw that, wanting to host, me, wanting to have a fight there, incredible meetings and 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 discussions and and all of these great possibilities, but. You know, I think you can push your luck in this game, Jerry, you know? And I'm kind of like, at 37, all I wanted was this. I've got it. I had my greatest night. I can't top it. A 12-round war. Like, even with professional boxing, it's kind of like, you haven't really, like, in the back of my head, I used to always say, well, you're not really a professional fighter unless you've done 12 rounds, you know? Because <laughs> you have to do 12 rounds. That's the that's the pinnacle, you know? And now I've done that. And, you know, I just I just don't think you can top the night I had and I'm not naive like enough to think that my next fight could you could you could end up in, on, on your backside mm-hmm. and you could bow out that way and I don't you know what's the point what is the point you know it's not money or anything like that that's all I wanted and I got there you know and I think it it, it justifies everything I've done now you come in and you've got a pain in your hand still I do yeah my hand's a bit tender people are shaking my hands well done early I'm like ah oh, thanks yeah yeah <laughs> and um, I have to tell them now stop shaking my hand I'm kind of like just doing this fist pump and I'm in no rush to kind of get it looked at because I'm retired but I have I got on to my physio a few days ago I said you need to get refer me for a, or send a referral for an x-ray so I'm waiting on the call now right yeah. but that's like also a sign to your body is like yeah no you, yeah. Enough, yeah. we're done yeah. we're out we've had enough now yeah no that's true the body is screaming at me like you know over the last while like the Ramirez fight I couldn't do a running session at all I was on the bike every time like I'm for a boxer you need to be running yeah. running is so amazing and I just couldn't do it I couldn't I was on the bike and I was just so annoyed because of because, that because of hips or knees or uh, a tendon issue right. on the back of my right and uh, back of my right knee um, it's just that big tendon on the back of your leg Um so that was the issue, and he used to just get me at the top of the calf, bottom of the hamstring, right there, just above and below the knee, and it, you know, it was so annoying. And uh, it's one of these things you're getting loads of physio on it, but again, it's just wear and tear, you know, the mileage. And um, but but for the El Hadri fight, everything just aligned for me. Um, all, I obviously had to do a lot of prehab and rehab, but it was like the gods were looking down on me uh, for just this one final time. It's know? perfect. I, I had a, a, a DM last night from somebody who I don't know, and I'm, I'm not going to mention his name. Hey, Jar, I should have mentioned this earlier when you had the Eric Donovan podcast last year. Some of the chats, I think Ushie McConville especially, stirred me to get the help I needed. He talks about another podcast and says, thank you, and whoever else for producing them. So much shit in the world, thought I'd say something positive here anyway. Like, that impact that you've had, you didn't know about, because, I mean, he didn't know you were coming on today, and he didn't know you, you were going to yeah. be here for me to read that to you like wow. that seems to be something that you've managed to build over the last couple of years you go and you tell your redemption story now you're bringing a belt with you it's yeah. like a very powerful force multiplier for everybody in the room yeah it's very it's very overwhelming like you know and it makes you emotional when you think about that because like a lot of people help me out along the way um, and I'm just trying to do the next right thing in my life you know that's it I'm just trying to put my Put the right foot forward and do the right thing, and that's the principle. I work. The principle I work off in life is about doing the next right thing, you know. And when I stand up and do these talks, I have another talk today. I'm heading to Cork today. Um, uh, after here, I'll be leaving, heading to Cork. So, like, but when I when I do these talks, I do sometimes feel exposed, you know. Sometimes it's different. It depends, but there is times where I give a lot of myself, you know. Yeah, well, I do feel exposed afterwards, and I do be like, oh. Should I should I, should I open myself? But then, 
like this when you get these messages you know you're doing the right thing I know I'm doing the right thing you know it only lands with people yeah. if it's true and if yeah. you have exposed yourself and if you have shown that vulnerability and I think that's why so many people rally behind you and like I don't know I, I, is there a book coming I hope there's I a book know. coming yeah. I don't know I honestly don't know there has been a few uh, there has been a few conversations alright about possibility and I just said well it was before this belt and I just said I'm sorry I can't write a book right now because there's a couple of chapters uh-huh. left to, to, to write but uh, we, we could possibly look at one now yeah, yeah. what uh, what reaction do you get when you bring the belt into a classroom like, I, I remember when I was a kid and Kevin McBride came into our classroom after beating Mike Tyson and wow. yeah. just like you're just thinking this guy's it's madness but like yeah. you must have that reaction because kids must look up to you now as just this otherworldly hero walking in with a belt like that yeah no it's look it's really special it is and over the last kind of number of years well especially the last two years when I broke into the European rankings I used to do a lot of these talks and I'd finish the talks by saying here I am am in the these are the current European rankings this is where I am and that's my goal my goal is to get to the top to win the belt so for all the talks I used to be doing that and doing that and then I used to say to myself God if I don't get this belt I'm going to be just like left with the guy who you know the guy who made it into the European rankings but I have now the screenshot of the the latest EU European rankings and it's the top champion Eric Dunham, before I was even in them you know and that's for me it's just like it's incredible it's a uh, physical it's thing like uh, to walk yeah. into a classroom for kids to hold, be able to hold something and go this is what yeah. he won like yeah. it's just yeah there's so many that there's so many schools there's so many uh, groups now that I have to get back on to and, and to call into um, there's just so many I don't even want to name any because I leave some out but yeah I, I'm so so lucky and grateful that this had an impact on so many people not just the belt it's the whole story as as Sir said it is a whole redemption story that has many kind of elements to it and for me I just I just love being able to kind of make people proud and happy you know and to give them a bit of hope you know in in a, in a life that can be very very tough 100% um, so your identity is changing obviously evolving from professional boxer onto yeah. the next stage of your life mm-hmm. um, you have picked up a lot of knowledge along the way there are some interesting openings coming up in Irish boxing are you interested in being involved I said this before I don't want to confirm or deny but like I will think I'll always be involved in boxing you know I think in some boxing is my passion I have so much to offer boxing and boxing has given me so much and I actually, I actually think that boxing is is an amazing sport can do so much can do so much positive so much good it hasn't been shown in the in the greatest light over recent times you know and the people in the boxing like even at the hierarchy haven't done themselves any favours you know it's even like threatened to be you know removed from the Olympic Games and that would be a travesty it would be an awful shame if that happened so I mean I'll always champion boxing like you know I'll always kind of be an advocate for it because I know that the work it does and I know that the the majority of people in it are good people and they, they and I said this before they're not just boxing coaches many of them they're life coaches and they help people so much um, so yeah I think I'll always be involved I will say that as a coach or um in some capacity I'm working as a coach already with Jude Gallagher who's uh, only 21 years of age one of the brightest prospects in world boxing not just Irish boxing uh, Commonwealth Games gold medalist he's from Tyrone comes down to me stays a couple of nights a week in Drada and we train and we train hard and he is an absolute joy to work with and he is a candidate for the Paris Olympic Games and he can go wherever he wants to go in the sport 
Uh, I know you were working with a football, the Gaelic football team as well. Yeah. So you, you're you're involved at that line, like yeah. kind of, or interested at least in mm. in working with people to improve performance. Yeah, always. I, I love sport, uh, you know, but I I think there's a huge kind of uh, kind of correlation or connection between like the, you know the mind and 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 sport and 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 the body and obviously. Um, getting the best out of people is not always just training them to death you know what I mean it's sometimes just being able to connect with them and work with them and train smart like that's what I had to do over the last couple of years not train hard train smart you know what I mean and as a youngster growing up I always thought was train 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 your heart you know train yourself to death but uh you know, there's a, there's a smart way of doing things. Uh, it's funny, Eric. Like I, th- I mentioned, the, the Al-Hadri 10th round is a key moment in your career. Like 2016, when you're turning pro, mm. it, like for people who maybe don't follow boxing, they think, oh, amateur into pro. It's the same, it's the same thing, it's the same game. But like, mm. realistically, the amateur game, punch, avoid the counter punch, rack up the points. Mm. Uh, like for you entering that professional ranks, you know, it's you have to have that killer instinct. It's a totally yeah. different mm. ball game. Like, do you almost separate your career into? Two halves, almost. Yeah, first half, second half. Yeah, yeah, it is like that. Um, amateur, professional, uh, and you're right. I was so long a professional that, like, it took me, like, it was so hard, and I never really fully transformed or transferred into the professional kind of sitting. But I did learn enough to win that last fight from Packy from the time that we had. You know. Um, if you watch my defence in that fight, if you watch my hands, they're up here. I used to be an, an amateur southpaw, slick. Hands were always down around. Even watch the Barra fight, my hands are down. And maybe that's why I got caught with the big left hook. But if you watch me against uh, El Hadri, my hands are here for 12 rounds. But Packy had me training that way, you know. And after at the, at the end of every training session, we would do this thing where we would be for two rounds of... Uh, shadow boxing in the mirror I would start with um, one kilo dumbbells in each hand for 30 seconds then drop one, uh, then two kilos then 30 seconds stop then three kilos in each hand and then go again back to so it's a three minute round and I would do that for two rounds at the end of every hard training session and I'm telling you my hands were just falling off me but then if you watch the fight the 12 round fight my hands were here even yeah. at the 12th round they're here and uh you know that's you know that's what you have to do. That's uh, when McCullough, right? When that Eddie, McCullough, Eddie Fudge yeah. talked about McCullough was going to make it because he he had that kind of. And I mean, obviously yeah. protected him all the way to yeah. his incredible career. Yeah. Loads of really nice comments coming in. Uh, he worked hard for it. Respect says Mark C. JP Wright says this guy's an inspiration to everybody. Eric, what about joining the Kildare backroom team? Uh-huh. They could yeah. uh, they could definitely do with it. Sean Mulhern says Eric is such an inspiration. Every time he's on the show, it's brilliant. And Brian Slattery says such a great speaker and an inspiration. Like. This is, uh, you, you don't see the texts and messages that we get, but every time you're on, there is this outpouring of people um, just rallying behind you. I, I hope you feel that. Do yeah. you? I do, yeah. I, I, last night I listened to uh, another kind of a tribute to me as well from irishboxing.com as well, and I was just kind of like a little bit kind of overwhelmed by that. I got a bit emotional. And Laura was, my wife just be trying to tell me, you know, you have that impact, like, and I was just like, I don't, like, I didn't, I don't see that, you know what I mean? Because, uh, I think it was because of my own kind of imposter syndrome thing that I used to be dealing with most of my life, not feeling good enough or not feeling worthy or whatever. But I tell you, I am growing in that regard and I can, I do know today and I can accept that I am having a good positive impact, you know, and I think that there in itself is a huge step, you know, in the right direction. It is. It is. You deserve it, though. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, again, the the comeback is an incredible story. The mm. book is going to be incredible. I hope there's a movie of it because you deserve it. And um, <laughs> like, I'm, I'm, I'm genuinely really interested to see what comes next because whoever gets you, whichever aspect of Irish sport mm. gets you, they're going to be incredibly 
uh, mm-hmm. successful and um, you know I don't know I, like, what do you want to do <laughs> I don't even know what I want to do myself but that's not I suppose uh, that's not saying that I've nothing to do no you know sure because I mean? yeah. like, you've got everything yeah. to do um, the amazing thing is that I'm very lucky that I can uh, spend a bit of downtime now with my wife and my children and my two older kids Jack and Troy they were up with us for the midterm and all them just great like you know it's a lovely lovely time lovely moment and uh, and I, I I do these talks you know here and there but it's not like you know every day I'm having to run out and leave the house so I can enjoy a little bit of downtime but I will I will kind of I suppose because I do know I need we all need to have a structure in our life we all need to be we all need to be involved and so we all need to be working so um I will look at where you know what you know. I'll o- I'm open to options and discussions, and we'll see where it goes. I suppose. I saw a quote for, uh, recently where I think it was since your latest um, baby was born, where Laura said these are the best days of our lives, yeah. and like that struck me as something that you know you do have time now you can relax yeah. and unwind and enjoy these best days of your life. Yeah, and that's it. They are like you know we they're extraordinary times, and I think we should always really push for push the bar and. You know, step outside of our comfort zone. Like we all know that. How many times do we all say, like, okay, life? You know, stepping outside your comfort zone—that's where it's at. You know, but we don't do it enough. You know, I think we're all really, yeah. we're all performing, obviously, but way below the, what our maximum. You know, um, so take that risk. You know, take that leap of faith and and just push the boundaries. And um, you know, that's where the, I think that's where uh, your uh, I think I think that's where you'll discover your true qualities. Uh, last one for now I needed this today thank you Eric says Stephen in Dublin 3 I think everybody always needs a little bit of Eric Dunham in their lives congratulations man it's um, it's a testimony to you and the hard work and uh, it's a great story thanks man sure. can I just say thanks to Off The Ball you've been absolutely amazing uh, champion me right from the very start you know you rally behind me and everybody I meet people I meet in the street they're always in me I listen to you on Off The Ball I listen to you on Off The Ball you're brilliant on Off The Ball like you know it kind of goes hand in hand Eric Dunham and Off The Ball so um, did you say what was I doing next year was <laughs> <laughs> I want to joke no but seriously honestly I want to say that thanks very much hey, you've been, been, you've you've been, been sensational the whole way along we've got Paul McMahon talking about his book next OTB AM on OTB Sports Radio Ireland's first and only sports radio station The Koivig Pod on OTB Sports I'm laughing because I was listening to a conversation that the City Girls were having and they were just going on about this throw in <laughs> I was like yeah that's our weapon in the World Cup it's so great for the league that once again we're in this position. I was watching PSG. I wasn't overly impressed with them either. Keep up to date with all the WSL action every Tuesday and subscribe to the feed in the OTB Sports app now. OTB AM with Gillette in association with Movember. Effortless shave, magnificent mode. Right, we're talking hurling now. I'm delighted to say Park Mara is with us to talk about his new book. It's called All on the Line, A Memoir of Hurling and Commitment. How are you? Good during yourself. Good. We just had Eric Donovan in, and uh, we were referring to him as a former professional boxer, and he was talking about his identity. That was a big thing for you in the book as well. That whole "I'm a hurler," and then all of a sudden one day you're not a hurler anymore. That's heartbreaking to read, and it's heartbreaking to kind of experience like now at this remove. Obviously, from your perspective, to revisit that for the book cannot have been any easy thing to do. No, yeah, it was like a, a long therapy session. All right, but. Um, yeah, difficult to come to terms with. Like you know, I wasn't expecting it. Um, I hadn't planned it. Um, you know, and then just to be all taken away from the space of a couple of days between, 
you know, from wherever I got my first scan on my neck to when I met the specialist, you know. So, yeah, it, it took me a while to come. Well, it's, I'm still coming to terms, to be honest with you. And uh, it's just finding that whole new routine. And as you said, you know, your identity, I might, I'm known as a hurler around home, like in Tipperary, you know. So, um, like, that whole thing is taken away from you. And, you know, you're just trying to find your own routine again and what's to fill that void you know and, and, yeah. it, and it's hard to fill it like because it's a big it's a major part of your life well it's like everyday training really like you know yeah. it's, it's not just the pitch sessions it's the eating and it's the like uh, what's everybody else doing it's the whatsapp groups it's the analysis and all that kind of stuff exactly yeah like and you know it's the small things like as you said there you know I found myself for the first few weeks and months you know opening up the biscuits the biscuits and things like that I used to never even look at like <laughs> and even though you could enjoy him, you know, even a Claire at home would be saying, Should go on and enjoy him, like, but it, it, it doesn't feel right, you know. And There's then, guilt associated with you know, it. And then I kind of, I used to love training and I fell out of love with the gym for a few weeks because I didn't feel like, what am I going to the gym to do? Like, you know, I have no end goal. Yeah. Um, you know, so for a few weeks I found that tough, but um, then obviously I found it better to exercise for my own mental health and, and well-being you know I found it brought me into a bit of routine as well you know so took a bit of juggling to get used to get used to my, my new life as they say Was there any point over the last couple of years where you thought about retirement where you thought that you know I need to start thinking about what life is like or had you decided you were going to leave that like had you kicked that can down the road as far as you could Yeah I never really thought about retirement to be honest with you um, you know I was planning on going back for another year and possibly two seasons with, with Tipperary I was feeling you know, very, very fit. There was no sense, oh, I'll give it one last shot. It was like, screw that. I'm, uh, you know, someone I'm going to have to, like, chisel me out of this team. Yeah, no, I, I, I honest with you, I, I, I said, no, I'm planning on going back next year and we'll take it from there, like, you know, and see how we get on. And um, obviously, my, the long term would have been to give the club a good three or four or five years when I'm able to give them a, you know, a decent three or four or five years, you know. And uh, so, yeah, like, whatever would have been taken away from the Tipperary scene. You know, taking out a club scene as well was that that kind of you know hit very hard as well. You know, because many lads get to go back to, and give two or three years of their club after they finish with Intercounty. Yeah, and um, that was just taken away as well. So that I found that very hard to deal with as well. We had uh, we had Paddy Stapleton on the show last week where he's writing the kids books and he, he was talking about the first time he picked up the hurl as a moment he distinctly remembers. Like, is that something that 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 you remember quite quite evidently in your head that it was that you're nearly in temporary, I guess, born with a hurl in your hand. You are, yeah, like it's nearly given to you for the first, when you're about five or six years of age. I remember my mother, you know, dropped me up to the juvenile club on a Saturday morning and, you know, for the first few, I suppose, months and maybe years, you're kind of like, it's, you know, you don't really want to go up, you'd probably rather be watching a cartoon on television yeah. or something, but, <laughs> you know, eventually, you, you know, you get you get caught into it and it, from then on, like from 11 or 12 years of age, it just consumes you, like, uh, we're very lucky with the schools in Turles. You know, it's all hurling. You know, our juvenile club, Turles Hog, all hurling, and then it just brings you on into the into the senior club in Turles. So, um, yeah, no, we've we've you've no real other choice in Turles, really. Only you know, if you don't play the hurling, you know, you're kind of made. You know, you're made play it. You know that kind of way. So, um, yeah, no, we've got a great education. To be fair, up through the years, I there was a great story from the from the book. Um, Plenty of great stories in the book, but you were talking about the 2009 All Ireland final uh, against Kilkenny, and you said in the book I was at full back. Richie Power was named at full forward for Kilkenny, but Henry Shefflin jogged in at the start. Shit! Looking back, it was a good move by Brian Cody. He probably said to Henry, "This lad did well in the league final, but he's the youngest on the tip team, the most inexperienced to go in there and rattle him." Like absolute, like, thrown in at the deep end as a as a young hurler. Like that's 2009. I don't know what age you were then, but you were young. One of the younger members in the tip panel. Like that that must have been quite an experience when you're. 
you're watching Henry Shefflin run towards you at the start of an All Ireland final. Yeah, you know, like I would have watched him for the previous ten years, you know, and been in awe of him, like you know, and being in awe of a lot of little Kenny lads, and um, you know, it's just see that. You know, I kind of had an inkling that it could happen because I think Brian Cody was starting to move, move around Henry Shefflin maybe in the big days on the more inexperienced players, you know, to try and rattle him maybe in that. And I, so I had a feeling it could happen. But then between you do your warm up and then you have to pray it and the stadium is heaving and bouncing. You know, next thing you turn to your position and you look up and here he's in dragging in, but he's probably wearing number 10 or 12. You're like, oh God, you know, like, but uh, yeah, I know it was, you know, I had a scared start that game as well. Um, I got out in front from, for the ball. It was only about a minute or two gone, and I ran over the ball, and it was only him one on one, and uh, with Brendan Cummins, and he pulled in it, and Brendan Cummins, in fairness to him, got a slight touch and knocked it out. I said, if that went in, like God knows what way the day would have went for me personally, but um, but yeah, I know settled in after that, like, and uh, but yeah, I know I was lucky enough to come up against some of the some of the good lads. All right, to be fair, <laughs> decent. Yeah. Were you always a fullback uh, up to that point, or was that a bit of a surprise for you to make the team at fullback at senior? Um. I probably would have played the year or two previous in my club fullback. Right. Um, but necessarily, I wasn't really a fullback. You know, Liam Sheedy actually had me fullback in the minor team in 06, but I was always a centre back, a midfielder coming up through the, through, up through the years. Um, I even gave a small bit of time in the forwards, but not too long up there now. But um, but yeah, no, for them first few years, I was kind of playing fullback for my club and for Tipperary, and then actually simultaneously, I was moved out with my club and moved out with Tipperary as well so after 09 in 2010 when you stopped the five in a row you're obviously in the in the halfback line yeah. at that stage when does that happen when does that uh, sure it kind of happened <laughs> it kind of was made happen I marked we played Cork in the first round 2010 and I marked Isaac Halpine blow and he kind of destroyed us the same day he did okay yeah and <laughs> I was moved out to the wing that match and right from then on it was kind of moved to the wing I was left at the wing like and that seemed like your natural position in a way yeah, which I believe never played wing back up to that. Right, never ever played wing back. It was always full back, centre back, midfield. I was never wing back until Liam Shee played me number seven. And just to be honest, which is probably one of, probably my best position down through the years. You know, the one I most felt naturally at. Yeah, isn't that mad? Mm, that yeah. like you know you need to have the traumatic experience of Isaki. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, and just guess like I got another experience. I was put back in full back in fourteen and. No, I was, I was playing perfectly fine there, but we played Galway in 2014 in the qualifier and, and Johnny Glynn scored two goals off me. Now it, was, I, it wasn't all bad that day, but uh, I was moved out after that as well. And again, it was just, you know, I was moved back in another time as well. So it is, you know, it is, you'd be moved after one or two performances, but then you're put back in again. So Well, I don't think anybody's going to stop by Saki that day. That was like all-time great performance. Yeah, him. no, it was a uh, tough going because he had given us a bit of a handful in the league game as well that year. So, um you know, he was just so big. He was probably one of the hardest men I've ever marked. Any right. differently. You talked about the number, the number six role in the book as well, and how that's changed. And even your kind of reference Declan Hannan and, and more recent centre half backs. But it, that was one of the things that started. You said like to have someone like Brendan Cummins behind you and him shouting at you. You know, watch left or watch left or whatever. And the fact that you can hear him in a crowd of fifty, sixty, seventy thousand people, uh, like it has changed his position dramatically. But to have a goalkeeper or someone who's so vocal behind you must make it all the, the bit easier. Yeah, you know, I was lucky enough when I was starting out like that. My first few years, nine, ten, eleven, we great big personalities and lads with major experience. Brendan Cummins had been going to Tipperary for since the mid nineties. Like, um, you know, Paul Corn was there, uh, Declan Fannin was there in two thousand nine. Um, Connor Mahin, you know, so there was there was major experience around there. Like, so we were so lucky coming in that these guys had been through it all and they've been through the tough times as well. So, um, 
Yeah, I know it was a bit, it was a big help to us, and as I said, you had big personalities made the, made the presence well known on the pitch, like you know, and even in the dressing room as well. So, um, yeah, we got a good uh, understanding of what was needed and required. Like those those tough times, Caroline Curd is someone we've spoken about plenty on the show mm. from the sports psychology perspective, and uh, you talk you touch on it in the book as well. The fact that after that 09 All Ireland final loss, you're obviously all gutted, and I think he's he's all sat around in a circle and and shared how you all felt I suppose this was probably before tw- the 2010 season started but you shared what the 2009 final defeat meant to you personally and there were a few tears in the room yeah I know it's funny like when you actually get a, a group of grown men into a room and they get to talk about their emotions like you know and for the first one or two you're like oh what's <laughs> what's going on here but then as it goes around everyone's actually feeling the same and it's amazing like you know when everyone actually just talks like that truthfully and honestly like what it means to people like then you kind of realise this actually means a lot to the group like you know and that's what Karen did she literally just one or two sentences and let the whole thing open up like and that's what she's very good at like you know and uh, yeah lads just talked about what it, what it felt and what it meant to him to lose and I suppose what it meant to him to win possibly win one as well so um, yeah that was kind of it It really opened up to us all that geez, this means a lot to lads you know and lads with kids lads that are married young lads early 19, 20 like we were you know so um you know, it, it all kind of bonded us together and made us feel, you know, that much more of a group and more stronger. And we needed that over certain games that year as well. How important for you was it to, because you're, you're still under 21 in in 2010 when you stopped the five in a row. That's right. You go on and win the the. We won 21 to follow on Sunday, yeah, yeah. Or Saturday. Sorry, yeah. It's not not a bad week, <laughs> but you had had that experience of being in the team the previous year as a as a 20 year old or maybe even a 19 year old at that stage. How important was it for you that the second time you were in the Ireland final was actually the second time, and you've been through that experience of seeing Henry shuffling in? Like, what what was the benefit of that experience? I always stood to us like I can only speak for myself, myself I suppose, but it definitely stood to me like you know everything wasn't new. Like the first year, it was just you're getting measured up for suits, you're doing just all them small things tickets you know everything was just was a big ordeal like whether it's the following year it was just nice and calm um, you know everything was new, wasn't new. We, we knew what to expect um, like I even remember Liam Sheedy going out to the finest detail of we were training at Simba Stadium one evening and he lined us all up as if we were getting meeting the president <laughs> and do you know someone came down and met us all yeah. I think it was the kitman hot paint <laughs> and do you know even everything was just covered down to tea like you know and we didn't probably have a big massive peop- amount of people come in looking as a training Yeah, you have an official open night like, just before the week of the game but other than that was you'd get a couple of usual local lads just looking in over the, over the, over the gate like but like we would have obviously heard what went on to Uncle Kenny with the, say. the thousands yeah. but I think we were just being were driven just to take the opportunity knowing that we missed it the year before and um, looked yeah we we needed every bit of it like, you know, to get over them that year you know and when it does happen and the final whistle goes in 2010 and you're an All-Ireland champion at senior level like Joe Brody has spoken before about 93 and winning with Derry and being in the shower afterwards in the Cat in the Cage pub and Condra and almost feel like it was an anti-climax some, in some ways no, plenty of other of his Derry teammates felt otherwise but for you what, what was that overriding first emotion when you realised that you'd achieved Liam McCarthy yeah I know it was amazing I remember um, he was running around like a lunatic like basically you just can't believe it and then we received the cup and you're going on meeting supporters afterwards like I remember one of the first supporters I met and actually I wouldn't have really known him at the time was Nick English was a couple of rows back and he just jumped out 
you know, give you a big hug and you're saying, geez, that's Nick English, like, you know, and that's what this is what it means to them. And you're just, everything is just, you're in party mode, like, you know, that night, the following day, the homecoming, everything was just a buzz. And then we had to knuckle back down to Tuesday night and go back training because we were playing the All-Ireland on the 21 on the Saturday. And we were lucky that I was played in Turles as well. Um, you know, so like I remember the, the lead up into that match, like, and I'm from Turles, so I'm living in town and you know, the buzz around the place was just unreal. And you knew the boys, the senior boys were going to travel to the county and they were enjoying themselves and we were getting all the pictures. But, you know, we had the opportunity to really make a party of it on the Saturday and everything just went down, you know, to a tee, like, and it was tur- like that week was just amazing. Like, it's, it's, just real, really, like, and no matter where you went or who you met, it was just everyone was in great form and, and buzzing, like, you know. So it's one week I'll never forget anyway. And um, the following week, I maybe comes in any time, you're, you're put back into club training and it's lashing rain, and you know, but no, it was an amazing week, like, and it's one I'll never forget. In a way, right, like, we we as a, a fans of hurling become aware of you more that year than even the previous year because you're just breaking into the team, but this year, like, uh, that that team stops the five in a row and so therefore instantaneous everybody is, is on the team is famous and then the next week you back it up in an under 21 game that I think far more people watched because there were five five seniors on the team right? Yeah. And uh, like I think the last time that we had heard this happen was 98 in the Galway footballers I hate to bring it up it, it kills me but anyway um, like it, so immediately there's kind of extra weight and celebrity that comes with that and our identity of you uh, going back to the start of the conversation is that you're you're a hurler and you're like a very important member of this team um, and I can see how like that just becomes who you are I'm, I'm now a hurler and we win all Ireland so like that must have been interesting and a bit of a challenge and also very enjoyable like a kind of whole mix of things yeah you know I suppose life did change a bit after that 2010 season because I suppose even nationally we came out of you know you know, we, we came into the limelight, I suppose, and um, there was a lot more eyes on us. And you know, you could hear the talk of, "Oh, well, how many are you going to win?" <laughs> you know, this kind of thing. And you're like, "Jesus!" And the effort has gone to that. But um, you know, definitely, we're in the more limelight. You know, if things go well, you get you get all the praise. But likewise, if things were going against you, or it was a loss, you know, or you, we lost the All Ireland final year, the criticism was a bit more you know straight at you as well like you know so we had to deal with both sides of it but um, yeah like we as we spoke about the start the identity the identity definitely came out that year you know 2009 was fine people kind of just and oh you're just so there was not very much about it but from 2010 the winter 2010 onwards you know walking down the street you, you were known as the hurler really like you know and yeah. um, the, the eyes were more or less on you if that's if if it was Christmas time and you're going out for a pint or and well, you're say, being watched and yeah. you know people look oh, is he having a yeah well <laughs> December like yeah. leave me away leave me alone like you yeah. know so are you tempted to run away from that at all or do you do you have to just embrace it like is it is it natural um I suppose it's annoying and when I was younger probably I found it annoying um you know all the eyes were on you but as I got older and more experienced. You know, I think I kind of dealt, dealt with it and just kind of, you know, it was what it was. It was all part of who we are and, yeah. you know, I'm just as normal as the next person. Like You're kind of at the start of that uh, generation of people who are like, can I get a photograph, can I get a photograph, can I get a photograph, can I get a photograph? Well, like, because I think just starting camera phones around the yeah. time, mm. you, yeah. Um, does that 
become normal? Is that okay as time goes on? Do you just get good at that and understand that that's what it's going to be like tonight where and there's going to be some melts around? Yeah, you know, I suppose um, earlier on, the first year, I think even referenced the book that you know, people look for uh, for photos after the All Ireland were beaten, and I'm like, "Why are you looking for a photo of me for like? Yeah. I'm only here a year, like." Um, but as time went on, yeah, you do find it, and the camera phones then, you know, were more, you know, you find you, know, you could be inside in a bar, or you could be anywhere in some ladder, uh, a child, or someone could come up and go, "Can we get it?" And just pull the phone out in front of you and start yeah. taking pictures, and you're looking, do you know, like so. Um, but you do get used to it, like I suppose. And as I said, that's the, that's the way it is now, you know everyday life you know no matter who you are so um, but yeah I know it was it's again at the start I probably found it a nine but again you you grow to get used to it that uh, that being thrust into the limelight as well I guess pundits take notice of the, of the team and the, the new players coming through there's a great uh, paragraph you had in one of the chapters as well you said I, I can remember Gerlach Nan saying back around 2009 that the Tipperary defence was very slow that if you turned us we'd be in trouble which is an art I heard a few times over the years that if a team got us running back towards our own goal we were essentially screwed. Like that, that, was that something that punditry and lazy narratives became a thing around 2009, 2010, that you were like, okay, teams are after us now because we're, we're starting to win games? Yeah, look, I, I, just, I just felt it was a bit, yeah, as you said, they're a bit lazy, like to throw that as like, people would have said that throughout all my whole career, and like, it would have said it about various players that was on the Tipperary team, like, but, you know, I don't ever think we were, like, ever looked, we were ever slow or anything like that, and, as I said in the book, like if if you run at any defence, if it's hurling, if it's football, and you break through, like every defender is going to look slow, like turning and chasing back, <laughs> yeah. like you know. So I just felt that was that, that didn't really hold up, really, to be honest with you. And um, I don't think anything like that ever caught us out over the years, like you know. So, um, but yeah, again, that's all part and parcel of you know as you're getting a bit more successful and winning a bit more, a few more games, that the line is going to be on you a bit more. As we spoke about, whether it's supporters. You know, at home or whatever, or even if it's if it's pundits or you know the Sunday game, different things like that. Like you know, so um, again, it's all part and parcel. It probably would have been something again that would have, would have, would have frustrated me to start. But as I got older and got more experience, it was something just went over my head. It's easy to enjoy those All Irelands at the time, like but like Gavin White was in with us on a Saturday there recently, and he, the morning after picking up his first All Star with Kerry. Like you have six of them. Like is it is it at the point where? Now that you're retired, you can kind of look back and say, "Jesus, that's not the, bad." The individual honours are fairly, fairly nice to look back on now because at the time you can't really talk too much about the individual honours. It's all about the team, but now you can kind of look back and say, "Jesus, I was fairly good." Yeah, I suppose again, it was wasn't. I didn't really reflect on anything in my career until actually writing the book, with, doing the book with with, uh, with Michael Minahan, and you're kind of obviously he's making you delve into everything that went on, whether it was the good games, the bad games. You know the wins, the losses, whatever it was, and yeah, look, it is nice to look back and and, and like, I no GA players, especially obviously they're all going to be still playing and involved. They're going to say, look, it's still about the team, usual stuff. But there's no doubt about it. It's nice winning an award, an individual award, such as, as prestigious as an all star. And um, I suppose now I can look back and say, yeah, look, it's proud to have them. And my mother is my home, probably looking after him. You know, and Rowan is lucky enough to have a couple there as well. So I was going to say, how many does he have? Yeah, I think he's two. I think. All right, so he's got a while, a while to go. Catch up yet? Yeah, but um, <laughs> hopefully he does. That means we're going well at home. So, um, <laughs> but yeah, no, they, they are nice to have. To be honest with you, and it probably now for me, I can look back and say, yeah, it just shows that I put in a lot of hard work and. It took a lot of hard, um, you know, effort and I suppose sacrifice. And um, yeah, look, it is nice to look back and have them a couple of awards. And 
uh, pity there wasn't another All Ireland or two with it now. It'd be nice. You'd have been uh, marking on Kelly sometimes in training. You might be marking him on the sideline this year. He's uh, he's in yeah. with Davy. That's going to be interesting. Yeah, you know he's down with Davy and Warford. You know, so it'll be interesting times this year. Right? Nice um, low profile Munster championship this season. <laughs> Jesus, yeah. But yeah, no, I think they were. There's probably a connection there from LIT over the years. I think the two of them were, were involved together in the Skipping Cup. But yeah, I know it'll be interesting. Um, we don't, but us in our, in our home club at Turles there a few years ago, he gave a handout. So um, yeah, I know he's going to bring a lot of expertise down to, to Davy now as well. So, um, But yeah, I know it'll be interesting times ahead next summer. Yeah, and um, Limerick obviously going up for their own little bit of history. It's uh, nice to have many teams desperate to stop them. Yeah, that's the thing. Like, who's who's going to who's going to stop them? Like, and if it can be stopped at all. But look, fantastic, fantastic team, and they're going through the time now. Probably that Kilkenny went through um, during the thousands. You know, just that kind of unbeatable feeling. Like, you know, and yeah. no one's going to stop us. And and they're, and they're probably and they're hungry for more. Like, you know, they don't sound like the personalities that are going to be happy with what they have. Like, and. So it's going to take an awful effort from someone. It's going to take an unbelievable performance on one given day and for, to knock to, to Limerick off their perch. And is the Patrick's Well game? Is there any context that that's important in terms of what happens next year? Does it matter at all? Is it just a completely separate competition, totally irrelevant? Which game is that? I'm sorry. The um, the Munster Club. Does that matter? Oh, sorry. Napierschik. Uh, Napierschik. Sorry. Um, does that matter in terms of an All Ireland? Is there anything that like Ballygunner can do, any template that they can put up against those lads, or is it actually better for the rest of the country if they go on and win a club all Ireland and um, over celebrate a bit? <laughs> um, I don't think them kind of lads now. Um, no, I wouldn't think it's any bearing. Like I think Ballygunner have run way of playing, and they're so you can see down through. The, I think Ballygunner have run through the, every club team they have. They all play in the same way, so they're not going to change their identity for. I don't think the Pierschicks the way they're going to play so that's why I think that game is going to be so intriguing um, who wins out in that um, you know I'm, I'm working down the, in around in the Pearce lads in Cardavon down there so spying yeah I think they're really going to push for they're going they're going for big time this year I think you know so that's going to be a cracking game you know I might try and get into it if I can and uh, but yeah we're really looking forward to that that'd be a cracker like and it would be interesting if Ballygunner's style of play can you know upset the Napierschik lads and see you know as you said there it could be something for us all to look at maybe in, in a couple of months time any, any little bit of evidence helps well listen we wish you the very best for the, and was the therapy therapeutic in the end do, do you feel better for having written it or is it like oh Jesus? yeah your parents which is something I never thought of doing and probably was never going to you know if you asked me a few years ago I was like no I'm not no way and then when I was put to him I was like yeah do you know what and, it's, and Michael was brilliant with me as well like you know and uh, you know we had some great chats and yeah, to be honest with you, when I finished it in, he said, "That's it, we're done now," and you sign off and you say you're happy with everything, and you said, "You know, what? I actually enjoyed that," and you know, it made me reflect on games, and you know, obviously games that didn't go so well, like the couple of irons we talked about, or you know, the games that did go well, like 2010 that week, and you know, 2019, 16, whatever it was, and you know, it's just said, "You know, that, that was actually nice," and you kind of go, you kind of you know, breathe out and go, "That's it," like and. You can try and move on if you can, like you know. So, um, no, I really enjoyed it. I remember sitting. We had a, a live hurling show uh, for off the ball in Croker, the Limerick Cork All Ireland semi final in 2018. And I remember sitting beside you yourself, bet- between yourself and Dan Shanahan, which was just the most remarkable insight for a game of that magnitude. But do, like you were sitting there and, and talking about the game as a player. Like, will you now watch hurling in a completely different way as a, as someone involved in either punditry or coaching? Like, can you can you almost relax now when you're when you're not 
involved in the game directly as a player can you now just kind of almost see it differently yeah look I suppose the Tipperary games last year I was watching them my brother was involved in and obviously I'm after leaving so I was still kind of look you know doing everything I could to try and nudge him over the line but all the other games then I enjoyed I really enjoyed, I never went to so many hurling games in my life and even to games that at junior intermediate level at home the club that I would never have went to but yeah you, you are kind of going looking at what way are they setting up and, and what are they what way are they doing to counteract them and different things like that so you're probably looking at it in a different in a different way more than just turning on a game and just watching to see what happens like you know so um, yeah I know the mindset probably has changed a small bit you know and then you know, and getting involved now in the backroom team with Tipperary and stuff. So you are watching how other teams are, what other way players are playing, or is there anything you can pick up? Maybe, you know, it's even gone so mad that you want you watch a football game, so you can pick up something off the football game that <laughs> you might be able to bring into the hurling side of things. So, yeah, I know the mind has been overdrive a bit, but at least in a different, it's in a different way more than when you were a player. Well, listen, we wish you the very best of luck with it. The book uh, is available in all bookshops now, but if you want to get a signed copy, you can head along to Easton's in Clonmel at 10 o'clock on Saturday morning and then at Thurless in Easton's at 12 o'clock. It's called All on the Line, A Memoir of Hurling and Commitment. Park, thanks very much for joining us. Cheers, guys. I appreciate that. If you want to get in touch, 0879-180-180 is the WhatsApp number. Uh, this is uh, OTBAM live every morning in association with Gillette. OTBAM with Gillette in association with Movember. Effortless shave, magnificent mode.